VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, June the 17th, and this is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626. All right, so beautiful day today. Hopefully a nice weekend in the offing. And just one week left, I believe, in the school year. So you know me, I'm always up for a conversation about how the school year went, preparation for the next, all the ups and downs, the ins and outs of the education system, whether it be K-12, post-secondary. I know there's a couple of teacher socials tonight. And so anyway, let's talk about that. Today's also Wear Plaid for Dad. So it's just the annual reminder and some awareness campaigns. Of course, one of the people leading the charge is VOCM cabin party host Brian O'Connell, who's one of the finest gentlemen you'll ever meet. Prostate cancer survivor. So the wear plaid, it's been created since 2015, this particular campaign. Also goes on with the ride for dad that's coming up very shortly. So the reminder for dads as we head into Father's Day weekend is time to get your prostate checked. It's not a quote-unquote old man disease. So guys my age, 50 years of age and up, really recommended to get it checked, the prostate that is, so plaid for dad today. And also congratulations to all the horsepower behind Telltale Harbor. It's a uh, production that's going to be hitting the stage in the Charlottetown Festival at the Confederation Center for the Arts. They've had a two-year hiatus. So Telltale Harbor, one of four productions as part of the festival this year, it runs, uh, started on Tuesday and runs until the 24th of September. And here's the quote coming from one of the reps of the festival. As of June 15, we've never sold more tickets for a show than we have for Telltale Harbor. So in our 57-year history, Telltale Harbor is the number one selling show. And many people involved behind this program or this performance is Alan Doyle, for starters, of course, big name draw. So that looks like they're going to have a hell of a season in Prince Edward Island or on Prince Edward Island. So there you go. Interesting one today in history. 50 years ago today, on the 17th of June in 1972, the B team of apple dumpling burglars broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Office Building in Washington, D.C. It still remains a topic of heated discussion. Of course, it led to the end of a presidency for Richard Milhouse Nixon. So there was a bunch of arrests made, and of course, you know some of the names behind it, whether it be the G. Gordon Liddy or E. Howard Hunt, who were monitoring the activities from, a, I think it was the Howard Johnson Motel or Hotel across the street from the Watergate Complex. Bunch of arrests made, and people were made infamous because of it. Not just those two gentlemen, but the John Deans of the world, and Mitchells, and all the rest of them. And of course, it absolutely led to the unraveling and the resignation of Richard Nixon. So it was today in history that they broke in and were arrested. I don't know if you watched the program that was recently on TV. I think it's come to an end, called Gaslit. It was about the Watergate scandal. Some terrific performances, Sean Penn, Julia Roberts, and others, and the guy who played G. Gordon Liddy, just outstanding stuff. Bit of a disjointed show, but I did enjoy it. I think, like most people, still intrigued with what went on. Now, the unfortunate reality of Watergate is we've been stuck with the suffix gate attached to any scandal anywhere, politically speaking. So, Watergate break-in today, 1972. Okay. 
Also today in history, uh, Amelia Earhart. We don't do enough to celebrate a rich avionic history here in this province. We could be drawing travelers from world around the world to come here simply because of it. So it was today in history in, let's see if I get the date here right. Uh, she embarked on her first transatlantic flight by a woman in 1928. Of course, this was on a plane called Friendship. She had co-pilots that day, Wilmer Bill Stoltz and Louis Slim Gordon. They landed eventually in uh, Burryport in South Wales after leaving Trapassi. And some of the rich history that we do celebrate, and they do a good job in Harbour Grace, it was the 20th of May, 1932, that Amelia Earhart became the first woman to do complete the first transatlantic flight solo as a woman. But it was in 1928 she became the first female, albeit a passenger at that moment in time, to complete the transatlantic flight. All right. Speaking of air travel, you know, we know the mandates have gone away and what have you. But access and the frequency of flights and direct flights and costs are a huge burden on this province. Even interprovincial travel is extraordinarily expensive. We've lost a lot of the really important flights, and I don't know what kind of work goes on behind the scenes at the airport authority or the provincial government level about trying to bring some of these carriers back. You know, losing that direct flight to Dublin. I mean, just can, can you imagine if we had a direct flight from Newark to St. John's International, or Paris, or London, or Dublin, or where have you? It wouldn't be just a boon for the tourism uh, industry, but there's so many businesses that they look at the access points and the cost and the frequency and make their decisions. Even if we extend that to, for instance, the all-out attempt to recruit and retain doctors, they'll think about these things. It's really important. Now in the, in the news is WestJet, one of the two big carriers. Now we have Swoop, which is a low-cost subsidiary of WestJet that does a lot of flights out of here. But WestJet quite simply says they're going to de-emphasize Eastern Canada with a strict focus on Western Canada. So what is already, I think, a major problem that we probably don't give enough attention to seems like it's just going to get worse. And if you want to talk about it, we can do it. Just one second, sip of coffee. Okay. What do I got here? All right. So we mentioned yesterday that the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, was set to make an appearance and a speech at the Empire Club in Toronto. Not so sure what there is to see here. It was a speech intended on government's policies and actions to deal with inflation. And it's an $8.9 billion speech. Okay. Much, much of it is really just re-announcing what was already in the past budget. So she spoke to the affordability crisis and inflation, five parts, respecting the role of the Bank of Canada, which has to be held to account, investing in workers, managing the debt, creating good jobs, and all the funding required for this affordability plan. My thought is, you know, inflation, there's more money in search of less goods. I mean, I, that's real absolute oversimplification. And there's lots of contributing factors. So maybe this just compensates for inflation. This is more a cost-of-living measure as opposed to doing anything to reduce the inflationary rate, which is at a 31-year high, just about 7%. So it's kind of confusing that they, you know, maybe it's a distinct misunderstanding of what the issues are. But is this an inflationary control policy or spent at all? I don't know. So there's the key focuses. You know, Canada's AAA rating has been secured this year again. But here's some of the ins and outs of this particular $8.9 billion. Boosting the Canada workers' benefit by $1.7 billion. It could be $1,200 for individuals, up to $2,400 for families. Increasing old age security, which we already knew, 10%, adding up to about $766 in new support for the first year. 
for those of you 75 and older. One-time housing affordability payment for 500 bucks for low-income Canadians. Reducing the cost of childcare by 50% on the path to $10 a day by 25-26. Providing free dental care for Canadians earning less than $90,000 a year, beginning with children under the age of 12. This year and expanding for over 18 and seniors next year. And curiously, the Parliamentary Budget uh, Office, which we really depend on, the numbers for the dental care program, the Liberals were telling us, is $5.3 billion. The PBO says it's more like $9 billion, including over a billion dollars in year one just to get it off the ground. So there are some of the things that are there in the, the big speech about inflation, but I think I'm, I get frustrated, I'm sure many people do, when there's so much fanfare surrounding some of these speeches where it's simply announcing what we already have seen and heard announced. So anyway, that's a bit of that. And importantly, the blueprint for the implementation of the Health Accord recommendations was released yesterday. There's a lot to it. I gave it a good swing yesterday to try to dig into it. It's a long read, to say the least. 262 pages, 59 calls to action. It comes with a price tag. You know, I heard a lot of pushback, whether it be in the email and social media, people poo-pooing this particular plan. But I guess the fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves is if we, if we don't transform healthcare delivery, where do we get? Where do we go? Status quo is obviously not working. It's simply not working. So some sort of transformation in the delivery model makes all the sense in the world. Now there's a $1.4 billion price tag associated with this over the course of 10 years. A key focus on the social determinants of health. We do know, you know, whether it be how much money you have, where you are, your level of education, there's so many things that factor into the potential for engagement with the healthcare system. So we've got to pay attention to it, of course we do. Now how people spend their money, that becomes, you know, how, how much interaction or engagement with government and individuals, the dictator determine, or to encourage, how you spend your money. It becomes extremely tricky, of course it does. One of the key focuses though is basic income. You know, it doesn't say to close any of these centers around, the healthcare centers around the province. Some adjustments based on population catchment areas, about hours of operations and the services that will be offered. And that will be a concern to many people who may indeed lose one type of service or another. A focus on uh, virtual care is going to be part of this. So there's a lot of recommendations, uh, ambulance bodies into one provincial uh, organization. So that would be ground and air just makes sense. Now, they talk about 24-hour pr province-wide air ambulance service. Not sure about the focus on pediatric air ambulance services. Not really specific. Not that I saw in my attempt to get through 262 pages yesterday. Maybe there needs to be a bit more of additional focus on mental health inside this document as well. And yes, there's going to be keen focus on uh, amalgamation of services and for seniors and plans and programs for the frail elderly, all these things that we know we're lacking here in the province, but if you've had a good look through it and would like to ask any questions or offer your insight, please do exactly that. There's also a distinct reference to climate change, especially in Labrador. So access to clean air, water, nutritious food, shelter, healthcare. Also goes on to say the healthcare system should become more self-aware in reducing its environmental impact. Curiously, I heard a radio documentary some while back one of the largest uh, environment carbon footprints in modern-day Canada comes from operating theaters in the country's hospitals. Strange, and I can elaborate if someone asks me a question about it, but there you go. It's not going to please all, but uh, again, if we stand back and ask the one fundamental question, if we don't do anything, 
what will change? The summary answer to that is nothing. And if nothing changes, then we are in a terrible spot. We're already in what I think is legitimately characterized as a crisis, so we have to transform. We have to. Some of these, in addition to, say, the deputy minister in charge of recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals and the health accord and the transition that's coming and the preparation for the aging demographic and their needs, it's going to be something that we have to tackle. And it's going to take me and probably most of you some time to completely absorb this blueprint. And I suppose next week we'll try to have Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis on to ask more focused questions, to try to get more information for you, because we're all going to play an active role in this. But the universal income, social determinants of health, you have to start there because the root cause is as to why we lead the league in so many cr uh, critical and chronic illnesses in this country, in the province, pardon me, this province in the country, I should say. So let's talk about if you're so inclined. Speaking of seniors, Susan Walsh, of course, long-term long -term social worker, most recently deputy minister of the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. She's only on day two or day three of her job. But she's identified five key goals. The transformation of the acute, long-term, and community care system, we all know. Preparation will be key. We know what's coming. The stats speak for themselves, so she has an important job in front of her. She's also focusing on the rising cost of living, housing challenges, programs and services that support aging in place. Everybody has a different hope and goal, as the want to stay in your own home, or the recognition of a need of additional care that can't be provided adequately by home care or your family. And yes, long-term care facilities, access to beds. We're not talking about institutionalizing seniors. We're talking about preparing for the level of care that's going to be required. So Ms. Walsh, we'll, we will absolutely try to get her on the program in due course to talk about her critically important role. But if you're into it today, we can do it. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Okay, let's see, one more. So we're going to get an update on the lower church of Muskrat Falls later this morning from Jennifer Williams, the CEO at Hydro. You know. Everybody knows the issues. Now the continuing problems with the software and the Labrador Island link, whether or not there's an update there that sees, sees the commissioning, final commissioning of Muskrat Falls. Soldiers Pond and on and on it goes. Who knows? But we'll hear from Ms. Williams a little bit later. VOCM will be there to bring you the details when they are available. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Little tune with a summer flavor coming your way right now before we come back and speak with you. In 1967, Groovin' by the Young Rascals entered the number one position in its ninth week on the chart, and it knocked off Aretha Franklin's respect. Here are the Young Rascals. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two, Justin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad, my friend. It's a uh, nice sunny day here in Central. What's it like out your way? Beautiful blue sky, nice and warm. Love it. Oh, that's the main thing. Come on with it now, right till February. <laughs> you said it. Uh, uh, just a quick comment, uh, Patty, first before it gets going. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, uh, of course, now the 21st is an important day coming up for across Canada. I know the National Indigenous Day. Yeah, next Tuesday. Uh, yes, and uh, my DZ year gone by already. But, uh, yeah, we're just uh, just to mention uh, this Charlie's Place thing that we've got, we've got on the go with this project now for over a year. We will be conducting uh, some visitations to the site now, right, starting on uh, 
starting on Tuesday and probably, well, depending on the interest, we'll probably be going for a week or, you know, depends on what interest is involved because we've got to get in a little window now before uh, weather permitting get up now. <laughs> After the flies and in between the uh, the flies now and, uh, and the fall of the year come from the hunting season, right, try to get some uh, some uh, some focus to the boots on the ground, we'll say. So just to walk me through it. So let's say I wanted to take the tour. What am I going to learn? Oh, it's just like you say. It's uh, uh, first of now we're just going to do like a preliminary run. Uh, there's a, like, like a lot of the area, see, Patty, where it's in, you know it's uh, hard to get into in the interior. So what we'd have to do is probably do like a you can do the boat tour like out around the, uh, the exterior of Charlie's Place that goes, of course, the two the two rivers and the Gander Lake is the other boundary. So you can get a good look at it and you can stop in and several coves and places on the river and you know walk up on the beaches and look at the you know, a bit of wildlife net there and stuff. And, okay. Or you can go into the interior on side-by-sides and stuff and just get into as far as you can on side-by-side or quad. Then it gets very rough. And you can get into the to these big tributaries and the ponds and stuff. You know, just to give people an idea of of, uh, of, of the, you know, because you can see it on maps and you can see pictures and you can read about it, but it's just it's better to get it out there, you know, like say, boots on ground type thing. And what we wanted to do, the goal here is, is to... Uh, like you say, is to open up government's eyes and uh, get the provincial connection here to the federal connection to, you know, just to, to nail down the importance of this area to to the uh, to the locals, right? Because, Patty, uh, within the six, last six months by uh, middle class, if you, you know, if you want to just, whoever's middle class uh, citizens, uh, a lot of them has gone below the, 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 you know, on the poverty line now because of all these, uh, up, you know, the gas prices and the grocery prices and the inflation rate, you know. But this, this area is really important to locals, not only just for indigenous, but just for, you know, for uh, uh, venison and hunt and trap and, and employment and, you know, just wanted to uh, get that across first, right? National Aboriginal Day, if I remember correctly, it was first celebrated back in the mid-90s, and I think it was Romeo LeBlanc was the Governor General at the time. Now, uh, this is a question based out of ignorance. Is there a distinct reason as to why National Aboriginal Day or National Indigenous Peoples Day, pardon me, is the same day as the summer solstice? Well, I I would say there would be. I I was actually thinking the same thing, and I don't know if there's anything to... uh, uh, to prove that, or to, but I, I think it's, uh, it would be related there because that, that was also a special time, and right across the right across the world too, uh, Patty. Like even you know Egypt and all them temples and stuff were built, to, you know, aligned with the solstice. So I just yeah. say it is by a connection there, right? Okay, I was just curious because I, I didn't know, but it just popped in my mind that's the same day. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, just a quick the dad there. These. Uh, uh, the, we're going to speak about the, uh, her, the, her Jessica Humber. There you go. She was on with Linda Wednesday, I think. I'm Linda Swain. They're speaking about this little brown bat and uh, and the uh, you know the, the drop in, in numbers and this uh, is really really you know, nice that it's being addressed, right? The drop in what numbers? Pardon me. Sorry. The uh, the bat population here and uh, well, I guess it's across Newfoundland really with this white nose syndrome, right? Yeah. So that's the little brown bat, right? Yeah, there's. I think we got we got three species, two of which are native, right? To our 14 native species here on the island, but uh, that just rang a bell to us. You know, we have our, our meetings here, and uh, we've spoken about Charlie's place, and on the radio at the same time, it was Jessica and a couple of our, our colleagues, I'm with Linda Swain, speaking about this bat. You know what I mean? And we've been seeing and drop for years, uh, Patty. You know, like a lot of times you connect that stuff to cycles, like you know, the rabbit cycle or the, you know, yearly cycles, but. Uh, Nobody, and oh my God, so everybody mentioned that this, you know, Charlie's place is, you know, with these two rivers, Patty, Norwest and Southwest River, and the lake, 
And the insects up there, like if you wanted to go up there now or within the last week or so, you'd almost need a zapper on your head, right? Because the, the insects up there is unreal. I guess it's ideal climate for them. And the well, bats up there, this is what these bats are, are thriving on. You know what I mean? And and uh, so a little a little bell went off, and I said, "My, my Jesus, you know, we we should we should be able to get up to these, get up to Jessica, and you know, like uh, propose." See, what they're saying, Patty, is what the scientists are proving it on is, is you know, human interaction is is you know, there's only one little spore of this fungus can get into and, and you know, contaminate an area. So where, where Charlie's place is not uh, the interior, there's no road system, everything is grown in. Uh, it'd be nice to keep a, a colony, you know, a healthy colony in central. Like if, it, if the if time comes, you know, because 99% of the colony is around in western Newfoundland, they says they're almost wiped out. So, you know, it'd be ideal to keep a, keep, keep a colony, healthy colony in central you know, if we had to disperse them, you know what I mean? I do, yeah, the three, I don't know what the three species of bat are. I know the little brown bat was the really common bat. There's a long-eared bat and some other one that I don't have no idea what it is. And bats go where people go. You know, the structures we build are ideal for them. And you mentioned insects. With warmer winters, we are going to see an explosion in the numbers and the amounts of insects and how early in the year they come out in the big numbers as the days and years go by. So, I mean, for people say, sure, what do we need a bat for? What do we need bats hmm. for? I mean, a, a part of the, every interchangeable part of the ecosystem is, of course, important. And we've seen so many species wiped out in the last 50 years. It's just extraordinary. So what's the importance of a bat? Well, Patty, I, I, I'm going to just, just for just for one thing, uh, you you take if you got, say you've got a small colony of, of little brown bat, we'll say, and there's a hoary bat too, obviously, but he's a... Uh, oh, yeah. Common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, but there is, uh, you know, say you've got a colony of eight or ten bats or probably 20 bats around your, you know, around your property or around your cabin or something. You know, one of these brown bats can eat up to 600 uh, mosquitoes per hour. Wow. So, you know, that's, I think that's doing a little bit better than your zapper. And you haven't got to plug in, your, plug in a bat. Right there. <laughs> yeah, they have, they have an impact on the uh, farming industry as well. They're part of the pollination chain. Oh, my geez, yes, the bat. And uh, like you say, uh, Patty's, you know, if a colony, like say 600 600 per hour, and you, like, if you've got a big colony of 100 bats around, you know, times that, it don't take long. You know, the time you get to August month, you're, the comfort that you're getting out around your door mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, it's pretty much uh, these are little, our little mammal friends is what they're doing for us, right? Then you hardly even see them, you know, and it's not something that people recognize as a, a, it'd be hard to tell if they're really threatened because, you know, residential areas not so much, but if you're up on these rivers and stuff, and like, uh, that's the only place that we can go now pretty much is the interior of Charlie's Place on these riverbanks. In the in the night times, late evenings, and you can well, they're they're obviously there, right? And what they'll do, Patty, is uh, we're the interior of Charlie's place. Now, I, I'm sure you've seen these old ver, and they're split down the middle, and the birch and stuff. And uh, that's where they'll love to go this time of year. So, and, and then they'll move out now, probably fall of the year, because they, they'll make in the fall, right? And then what they'll do then is they'll get out all around the shores of, of these big cliff areas uh, around Charlie's place and around uh, Gander Lake and stuff. That'll be their place now because frost-free place for, for wintertime, right? Because, you know, if it's obviously if it's too cold, they'll, they'll perish, right? Mm. All very interesting. And if you're ever scratched or bitten by a bat, get medical attention. they certainly part of the uh, rabies vector, I suppose, is the right way to put it. Uh, good to have you on the show this morning, Justin. And uh, in advance, happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you. Yes, thanks a million, Patty. And like you say, to the Premier or, or any of the ministers are listening, we're welcome for a tour, or you yourself, or... Just uh, <laughs> Dave can get my number if he like her. You have yourself a good weekend, Patty. You too, pal. All the best. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Here we go. Uh, good start. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Yeah, go away, Patty. 
Hiya. Not too bad yourself. I yes. can't remember the road. I called about three weeks ago, and then I noticed that they were patching some uh, holes between Orwood Intersection and Stoneville. So anyway, I left. I said, well, perhaps they'll do the rest of the road. So going down in Stoneville, it wasn't fit. I, I'll say for a tractor, I guess. So it was never done, never done. So the winter, I was talking to one of the drivers, and he said, I said, how come we don't patch up the road? I said, put some sand or something. Well, he said, the frost. So I said, well, I said, what are you going to do to spring now? I said, when spring comes, I said, well, you know, frost, it should still be the same thing. And it was, right? It was left. So in the winter, they can still fill up those holes with, with sand or something. I mean, just, just keep people from beating up their vehicle. So anyway, they went down through, they come across the neck, and they went down through Stoneville down a bit. But Orwood is still left. Now, that's three weeks ago. Right? So, mm-hmm. whoa, almost every other place, like, say, Summerford, you got a depot there, Lewisburg got one. But it seems like Ganabate area is left. The holes are still on the road. She's going across the neck, went down stone, got to, and last year I was talking to one of the, the foremans there, and Buddy was fixing up the ditch. I said, uh, I said you don't need the ditch. Fixed. I said, you need the paddles fixed. He said, yeah. He said, they're in Stoneville now. He said, filling up the holes. He said, I said, oh, he said, they'll be here later. So at the same time, I know we thought I was stupid, but I used to go back and forth to Stoneville all the time. So there was no always people that were filling the holes, and they never did come back to Orwood. Uh, so so, so what, are you, what are you trying to cover? You're trying to cover your ass for something that don't make sense? I have no idea. But I'm just <laughs> trying to... Uh, Horwood's close to Twillingate. Is it? Or am I in the well, right part? Well, it's, it's, uh, another thing, it, it, uh, well, you, you, if you come from Gander and you're going to Fogo, you got to pass Horwood intersection, then you got to go to Stoneville, then you go down Stoneville to get to the ferry terminal. Okay. But then... I noticed that, well, I'm sure people in Stoneville don't care about the road from the end of Stoneville down to the ferry because they don't they don't go there for any reason. There's no gas pumps down there. There's no store. But they paved the road from the end of Stoneville down to the ferry. Well, I looked at it. It was for that end, I guess, down on Fogo to make everything good down there. But through Stoneville itself, the road's not fit. So they, they, they fixed the best part of the road, but they left the worst part of the road. So like, what kind of glasses did they put on to see the road? <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Uh, you know, there's there's so many parts of the province where the roads are, of course, a localized concern, but I would imagine there's not a region that doesn't have concerns with the roads. And I see there's a Lassie fisherman uh, in the queue here as well. Someone sent me a video of the road into Lassie. Holy smokes, it's awful. Truly awful. And I'm sure it's awful where you are as well. Uh, Barry, anything else you want to tell us about uh, before we have to say goodbye this morning? Yes, but, but you, you, you go through Gander Bay. Okay. Where the depot is too. And there's not one hole in the road. The road is perfect. You leave Gander Bay and go down towards Carmel. The road is perfect. But it seems like whatever's outside of Gander Bay, the depot part, the road is not fit. So I don't know what's wrong. They can't get out and fix it. Or it just don't make sense. I don't know where it'd be on the five-year priority list. But I appreciate the time, Barry. Be safe out there. Drive safe. I mean. Well, I don't know. You can drive safe. And what are you going to do when it's nighttime? You know what I mean? <laughs> the holes are there, and some of them is big too. I'm gonna tell you, I actually drove from Orwood to Stoneville yesterday, and I said, 
Well, so when are they going to fix this part of the road? It just don't make sense. I'm not sure if it's on the list uh, this year. You can go to the government's website, get an idea of what roads are scheduled to be taken care of this go-around, this paving season or roadwork season, I suppose. Uh, Barry, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for this. Okay. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Cal Cole, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Not bad. Thank you. And this is our annual uh, conversation. Yes, sir. You could put it on, you could put it on repeat. Uh, I just want to yeah let people in the Clarenceville area know that our uh, ALS walk is going ahead again, uh, going ahead on uh, on Sunday, um, and registration is taking place at one. The walk begins at two, and it uh, begins at Easy Street Pub on Manitoba Drive. Give the folks uh, some of the background. How long you been doing it? Why you do it? Oh, this is my 18th uh, walk that I've uh, done, and uh, or well, I've done, and uh, I'm doing it because uh, 19 years ago my wife was diagnosed with ALS, and a year after that we began the walks, and we've been at it ever since. And Pat has been gone now for uh, 16 years, <laughs> so. Cal, I always enjoy the conversation, and when it has such a personal bent, it makes it even more important, not only to you, but the community, raise some awareness, maybe raise some money, and so good on you for doing it again. So what do folks have to do if they want to register? Uh, just uh, come along to uh, Easy Street Pub, and, uh, and we'll have a table set up there, and we'll do a registration there. Uh, this year, because of COVID, uh, we will not be having uh, any entertainment or, or snacks, uh, but uh, everything else will be normal. Hopefully a crowd will get out. Uh, in terms of money, uh, we've raised uh, in excess of $120,000 over the years uh, here in Clarenville. It's amazing. Uh, good on you, Cal. Uh, I don't know if this question makes any sense. We're going to ask it anyway. So ALS, it's uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, but many people refer to it as Lou Gehrig's disease. Is that helpful or not? Does it help to put a name to it to someone as famous as Gehrig, or does that change any of the conversation period i'm always curious as to when we add an additional name to a disease that has a medical reference but then we brand it as lou gehrig's disease is that a good or a good thing or bad thing i i i think it might be a good thing okay. but i don't believe that i don't believe it has significance now as it used to uh because uh, all of my contacts we now talk about als uh we don't talk about lou gehrig's disease or very rarely uh so it's just you know it's it's no, not necessarily an uh, identity of the past, but it's certainly not as commonly used as it used to be. Yeah, because that's just one person who had ALS versus the numbers of people around the world who have been diagnosed and have died because oh, of the yeah. progressive. It's a yeah. devastating disease. So, Cal, I really appreciate your time. Keep up the good work and have a great walk on Sunday. Hopefully there's a big crowd joining you. Hopefully it will be, and hopefully the weather will be okay. But uh, hey, if it's not okay, uh, as bad as the weather will be, it's not as tough as the storms that the ALS victims go through. No question. I- I've seen it, 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 and I think devastating is the word for it. Uh, Cal, uh, good to talk to you th- this morning, and I look forward to speaking with you again. I suppose it'll be almost one year from now. <laughs> hopefully. But in the meantime, I'm looking hopefully somebody else will, will be able to take it over next year. It's rough all the time. Getting rougher all the time, too. I but bet anyhow. it is. Good on you, That's Cal. Great. Stay in touch. Yesterday. All right, Patty. Thanks for everything, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling. Here's line number three. Terry, you're on the air. 
Morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, Patty, I'll talk about the shrimp fisher again. <laughs> uh, uh, my, uh, well, I, I've already talked to you a couple times about it, but uh, just to let your listening audience know now, those who are interested, that uh, my boat could not get sale for its shrimp in Newfoundland. Uh, from any Newfoundland buyer, they weren't not they're not willing to pay the negotiated price. So my boat is uh, on our way into the Strait of Belle Isle. Now headed to North Sydney, Nova Scotia. Yeah, good on you. So Josh, your young fella is the skipper of the is what the Atlantic Bluefin or Bluefin Two is that the name of the boat? Atlantic Bluefin Two. Yeah, that spells T O O. Okay, so dollar forty two was the price agreed upon at the price setting panel, far more than the ninety cents I believe that the FFA uh, the uh, processors were putting forward. So we've got ourselves at a stalemate. So walk us through some of the process and protocols here. You can find a buyer in Nova Scotia. Are you willing to share what price you're going to get for your shrimp there? Yes, I am. Uh, I, I'm not uh, 100% sure what I'm going to get yet, not right to the scent, because he wants to see the shrimp and uh, put it through his plant first. But judging on the information I could give him uh, on our the size of the shrimp we usually get uh, down north in deep water in Snatney Basin and uh, and uh, the distribution of it, uh, He's figuring it'll be around a dollar thirty to a dollar thirty-five a pound. And you can get what fifty thousand pounds or something around well, there. You got sixty aboard this trip. It's not a. Oh. It wasn't a big trip by uh, because there's a lot of codfish on the grounds and it's hard to keep on track with the shrimp. Uh, you do uh, you do really good for one toll. Next toll, you'd have a load of codfish and hardly any shrimp. So. Uh, until the codfish moves inshore chasing the Caitlin, which which should happen very, very soon. Uh, it's it's uh, not fast fishing, but in another week or so, it will be fast fishing. So it's one thing for you guys to be able to do it because you've got a 65-footer, but there's other uh, shrimp harvesters out there who don't, and they're out there in the 39-footer. They can't make that trip necessarily or safely, possibly. I mean, you're taking far greater risk than in your 65-footer. But help us understand how this works. So my understanding is if I go out to catch whatever, if I land it here, game over. I either dump it or sell it here. But if I go out and catch it and continue to steam towards Nova Scotia, I can do what I like. Is that how it works? Basically, yes. Not only Nova Scotia. You go or wherever. Yeah, I just said Nova Scotia. Or, or uh, New Brunswick, too. And, uh, and, and just the other point, there's nobody out there in a 39-footer. The smallest boats that fish shrimp is that uh, there used to be a couple of 45-footers that a few years ago. But I don't think any of them. The smallest boat that they're fishing shrimp now is probably a 55-footer. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't know. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. there is a additional risk with the size of the vessel to make that steam over, whether it be Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. So, uh, when's he scheduled to land? On Sunday, Sunday, late Sunday. It's a seventy-two hour steam from the Sanatney Basin to uh, North Sydney, Nova Scotia. Is this as much about a protest sale when you talk about the cost of fuel and the time it takes to seam over and to sell your product for whatever's, let's say you get a dollar thirty-five? Is there a big economic upside to this, or is this as much a protest as anything else? It's got a little element of both, I guess. Uh, this is not going to be uh, much of a money-making trip on 60,000 pounds of shrimp when you consider uh, the extra... Uh, 50-odd hours of steaming each way versus landing in a Newfoundland port on the northeast coast and the and the very high cost of fuel this year. 
but he, he won't go in the hole. He won't go in the hole, and the crew will make a paycheck. Uh, uh, so it's partly protest, I suppose, but it's also partly... Um, I was going to say stubbornness then. Some people are going to say stupidity on my part, uh, but I don't care what people say. Uh, they're not paying my bills. Uh, uh, but uh, <clears throat> this is uh, this trip will hopefully open the door for us getting the rest of our shrimp out of the water too. And uh, you know we've had to pay dearly to buy extra shrimp quotas. They don't come free. And uh, I am not leaving shrimp in the water. I'll turn over every stone from here to Japan if I got to to get that quota in as long as I don't lose money. And on a 100,000-pound trip to Nova Scotia at that price, I'm not going to lose money. I'll make some money. I won't make what I would land landing in Newfoundland, obviously, at the same price. But, I mean, what do you, what's your alternative? Leave it in the water and make no money. Just give us an idea. So, for the 72-hour steam, what is the additional cost, just in fuel alone, to go to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick versus go out to where you go normally fishing for shrimp and to bring it back to port here? What's the additional cost? Well, you're talking uh, twice 72 is what, by 144? Uh yeah. Yes, I keep, yeah. So you're talking extra 144 hours steaming on a round trip. Uh, so you're talking. My God, now I don't sit back in the calculator, Patty, do this accurately. All right, I'll give you a rough figure. Yeah, rough figure works. Okay, so if you got your calculator there, perhaps you can help me. Um, steaming, you usually burn with that bolt we got there, uh, 640 horsepower engine. You're burning uh, probably. 15 to 20 gallons of fuel an hour. So that's uh, 20 gallons times four and a half liters in a gallon is what? Uh, uh, 80 odd 90 liters? So what? give me the numbers uh, and, one more time. Say about 90 liters per hour and a liter of diesel fuel right now, dyed diesel uh, with our uh, permits and so on is selling here in La Sea for around a dollar I think it's around a dollar sixty a liter. Yeah, so and that's about thirteen thousand liters, right? Thereabouts. On a on a round trip, extra extra versus landing in Newfoundland. So it's thirteen thousand liters times a dollar sixty a liter. You get a calculator there? Uh, no, but it's about twenty thousand. Extra twenty thousand dollars on a round trip. In wow. <laughs> Significant. Uh, appreciate the time. Anything else you want to add, Terry? Before we say goodbye. Well, yes, uh, one or two things. Uh, th- th- this is a terrible situation. Uh, hello? I'm just listening. Oh, okay, now somebody else is calling me there. I they made a cut, yes. Uh, but uh, th- uh, th- we're in a stalemate in the shrimp fishery in Newfoundland. We might be in a stalemate in the Cateman fishery, too, because the, the buyers haven't announced yet if they're going to buy Cateman for the price the panel came down with. And this is going to repeat itself for other species in this province. And the, the only people who got the authority to fix this price-setting setting system in Newfoundland and Labrador is the provincial government. The provincial government created the legislation that created this price-setting panel and the, the rules under which it operates. And they can reconvene the House. I, I'm being told the House would be reconvened for part of a day. And they've done that thing before. Press has been set uh, to make an amendment to the legislation that would give the uh, price-setting panel the authority to pick a price 
somewhere in between the two final offers that might get rid of the roadblock that's preventing the fishery from starting. And the provincial government can also make an amendment to whatever hack it is that controls the uh, issuance of processing licenses to the processors. They have the authority. I don't know if they got the will or the political will to do it. They can also make an amendment that would would put an extra condition on those processing licenses that would state something like this. Uh, If you don't pay the negotiated price, as long as we can establish that negotiated price reflects the fair market value, considering, you know, your overrated expense of processing in Newfoundland and so on, if you don't pay that, then we'll revoke your processing license. And that would fix this problem. It would create a row. We're all playing around anyway, so... (laughs) Yes, it would do exactly that, but the fishery is as much a row as it is a business sometimes. But, uh, oh, yes, the Patty, it's a row, but it's also a two to three billion dollar industry. This problems right now. Oh, I know. Right? Yeah, yeah, I don't. And, and I don't I mean, dismiss it. Yes, but, it's yeah. important, obviously. And I mean, yes, and if Andrew Fury, the Premier, and Derek Bragg, the Minister of Fisheries, thought that the, the wild, the wild fishery. Now, I'm not talking about aquaculture. It thought the wild fishery was important at two to three million dollars to our provincial economy uh they would do that i mean uh, they do it for other industries that are worth that kind of money like the oil industry and the tourism industry and the mining and forestry industry what makes the fishing industry different uh, I don't know. Uh, part of it, I suppose, is the implication of federal government involvement as well. Sometimes they use that as a deflection as, a mu- as much as a reason or a rationale. Uh, Terry, off to the break I go. Safe steam for the young fellow. Just one minute now before you go. Terry, I have to go. Okay, fe- okay. federal government. Got n- n- this, has got, this got nothing to do with federal government. This is a process. I didn't say it did. I didn't say it did. Okay. Okay. Appreciate the time. Take good care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. It's uh, Genevieve here uh, calling from the Earhart Cultural Heritage Organization. Welcome to the show. Uh, I, I said caller because I didn't want to say Genevieve or uh, Genevieve and not know which way to pronounce your name, but thank you very much for joining us. Listen, I think we've had this debate before because it's been about three years since I've called you about events, and that's why I'm really excited that I'm calling about events again. Um, But, yeah, I think it was the same. So Genevieve is just fine. You can call me Genevieve. Genevieve it is. That's it. Um, So as I'm looking out my window now here in Chapassi Bay, we're totally locked in in fog, and that's what Amelia Earhart would have experienced um, 94 years ago. And our organization has basically um, been built around um, trying to get that story out, as well as some of the other historical assets that we have down here. And we were granted um, a Come Home Year grant, uh, thankfully, through the government, uh, to put on a performance series. It's called the Southern Avalon Performance Series. And the first show is tonight. And it's, it's, it's appropriate because today was literally the day that she launched off our shores and onto the world stage. Nobody really knew that story that, that much. They knew, like, I mean, I know Harbor Grace crew uh, celebrated their 90th there uh, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did so um, back in 2018, which is what this show is based on. We're recreating the event that we had for the 90th anniversary celebration, which included a songwriting competition. And out of that songwriting competition, Evelyn Jess, uh, her song called Trapazzi in June, uh, was the winner. And part of her prize package was through um, was a video shoot 
that would be done by Roger Monder of Upside Down Films. Mm -hmm. So tonight is the launch of that video, and I was on the set. I was out there at the shoot for this video, and I just watched the finished product, and it's like, it's spine tingling you know like i got the sense when i was out there it's like the past is reaching back to the future you know the to the to the future because we actually had amelia Earhart dressed up um for the shoot which happened to be her evelyn's mom or evelyn jess's mom so that was kind of poignant as well so yeah so this evening at edge of the avalon inn uh the doors open at seven and we're going to be showing that video as well as the lauren war documentary uh amelia Earhart, uh, a woman in pants at chronicles the whole story um in there uh, you know the history of what she, you know she was locked in for her and her crew were locked in here for 12 days they couldn't get out and there was a big race going on as well up in harbor grace with mabel bowl it was a race for the first woman to cross the atlantic she didn't fly she was only the passenger but it, it it put her on the stage nobody knew who amelia was really until that event right yeah so. we all know about the 20th of may 1932 as the first <laughs> transatlantic solo flight but the yeah. the story from 1928 is also fascinating to me so you know i think one of the quotes from amelia Earhart is that you know people refer to her as just being additional weight didn't appeal to her mm-hmm. at all but she took the offer anyway and there was mm-hmm. on a uh, an aircraft called friendship and the two mm-hmm. men that were also on the plane wilmer bill stultz and Louis Slim Gordon, but it is still a fascinating beginning to what is an extraordinary tale regarding her life. If anything, I think I think it inspired her because she got off that plane. She's like, next time I'm doing it myself. Yeah, there right? you go. <laughs> like she she was she was that kind of that's that's a spirit that our organization embodies, you know. So this performance series is multidisciplinary. I hope I'll be able to come back in on again the show and share some of our other shows in the future. But I'm trying to get all the different, you know, we've got a, um, a film festival that are all musicians that have turned filmmakers. Um, we've got uh, a theater performance. We've got storytelling. We've got songwriters. It's not, and of course, music. But it's it's as multidisciplinary as we can get, because it's time now. And you know, you know, I'm personally a big advocate for tourism and the arts. And I think these stories, like the Amelia story, coupled with, you know, the songwriting competition and 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 this video, it's just a natural marriage to get these these stories out there and to and to inspire people to maybe come visit our region, um, as well and support support the local economy, right? So yeah. So in thirty two she landed in Ireland in 28 landed in South Wales uh, report yeah uh, we can fly across or can we uh, an aircraft jetliner can fly across the Atlantic in around seven hours how long did this particular trip take in 28 21 21 just under 22 um, actually almost the exact length of the documentary that that, that will uh, that Lauren uh, created so I think it was 21 hours it took and they barely they puttered in. So she actually, this is, these are the stories that, that aren't told, but she actually had an orange in, in the plane that she tied a note to because they were running out of fuel. They were, they were aiming for Ireland, I believe, right? So um, they ended up in Wales because they went off course. And so she had an orange and, and attached to a note, and they were flying over a Navy ship, and, and she flew it out trying to, trying to get that orange. You know, this is the kind of survivor spirit that she had, right? But those are the neat little stories that people don't hear. And this is these are what we want to start sharing with the world. And hopefully this video, I think when everybody sees it, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. Roger did an amazing job. Really great job. Yeah, Roger's a good friend of mine. I'm anxious now to check it out now that I know about it. It's great to have you on the show this morning, Genevieve. Thank you. Can I just 
say one thing? Sure, you can. If people want to follow uh, what we're at, so it's the Earhart Cultural Heritage Organization. I'm doing all the social media, the Facebook. We're hopefully going to live stream some of the stuff. Nothing fancy, you know. Um, I know people have gotten really technical during the, the, the lockdowns and stuff, but we just want to share a little bit about what's going on at the event tonight, and they'll be able to catch some of that on that Facebook page. Thanks so much, Patty, for having me, and you can call me whatever you want at this point. I'm going for Genevieve. I'm sick with it. All right. All right. Thanks for this. All right. All right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We're going to talk about the Positive Thinkers Club. Love that. Big karate competition coming up soon. Brandon Welcher from Karate Canada is going to join us after this. Also, doctor shortages, all kinds of stuff on tap. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the Positive Thinkers Club. That's Karen Humby. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a beautiful morning, sitting in the sunroom, having a coffee. Can't complain about nothing right now. Thinking positive thoughts. <laughs> All the time. I tell you, some days it's a challenge, but you can always find something, yeah. even if it's a fresh set of sheets on your bed when you crawl in at night. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we have to almost force ourselves to engage in some positive thoughts because there's just so much doom and gloom and stuff going on that, you know, a welcome break to my day is to try to do something or think something positive. Uh, curiously, I'm half familiar with the club because back in sometime in the 80s, the one of the co-founders, Dave Rodofsky, I worked with his sister, or his sister, his daughter, Krista, on Out of the Fog. She's a great friend of mine. So I have that association with your club. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what goes on in there? Is it really a forced behavior to think positively? How do you approach that when you go to the Positive Thinkers Club or one of their presentations? Well, basically what it is is we have a you know a meeting once a month at the end of the month, and we have inspirational speakers, and these speakers could be sharing you know a challenging story of their life that they overcome. It's not a bunch of people sitting around you know a fire singing kumbaya songs all the time and just pretending that bad things or difficult challenges don't happen to people, but it's sharing stories and just getting whatever ounce of inspiration you can get from that particular speaker, and it could be you know we recently had Jody Williams on just talking about meditation and his challenges that he's had. We've had Boyd Merrill, um, you know, a retired police officer, and our speaker coming up on the weekend is about, um, you know, just eco, is, is looking at, you know, eco-positivity, so eco-mindfulness, I should say. So it's, you know, we, we take whatever nugget we can get out of, and the networking piece of the Positive Thinkers Club is what I'm most excited about today. Um, the pandemic was difficult. I mean, we've been on the go for... 33 years and we've gone through recessions and moratoriums and the pandemic and we've survived it. We had a physical location um, last September that when things opened up a bit, we were able to go back to, which was great. And Brian Medor actually came to the uh, first kind of revisited in-person meeting back in September. And then our location burned down. We were at Greensleeves Uptown. So we've been trying to find a location, and we've secured one. And I'm so excited to announce that we'll be meeting online again this uh, on the 25th, this coming not this coming weekend, but next weekend at the Royal Canadian Legion on Black Marsh Road, Branch One. Terrific. So yeah. give us a, a taste of some of the presentations you've had in the past. You say inspirational, you know, whether it be to manage stress or how to navigate a day, a week, a month, whatever the case may be, family-related matters. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. So give yeah. us an idea of what you've heard in the past and what the June speaker is or who the June um, speaker is. Yeah, the June, well, I'll just give you, you know, a June, the June speaker um, 
update right now. It's, her name is Don Goff, and she's a Newfoundlander, and she um, has a business where it's, she's uh, technologically minded with regards to what we call, you know, the eco-mindfulness of just making sure that we're taking care of our planet. Um, so her, her speech is called um, Trash the Disposable Mindset with Eco-Mindfulness and Make Money Doing It. So I thought that was that was really really fun to listen to. Um, so she's going to be just you know bringing her experience of 20 years working with uh, various technological in- industries to make sure that you know again we're taking care of our planet and it's uh, something that I think is going to provide a lot of um, inspiration just of how we can make sure that not only are we taking care of our bodies and our minds that we're also taking care of the world that we live in. But we've had you know Ryan Osborne just recently um, shared you know the benefits and positive benefits of exercise and we've had mindful movement presentations Um, we had the um, founder of the Howard um, of the I'm sorry I'm blanking out here no worries Um, so we can move on so we can get the blank removed so how strong is the membership our membership, well, during the pandemic, has been a bit of a challenge. Um, so we, you know, we have about 40, between probably about 40 members, 20 to 40 members right now, because we did a lot of our meetings online, and of course, everybody is zoomed out right now. So this is one, another reason why I'm, you know, putting the plug out again today to say that we're still here and we're coming back good and strong. Um, so we've had upwards to you know, 70, 80 members in a room just having a good breakfast and listen to a speaker we have affirmations which is basically our you know positive self-talk and i always call it getting rid of the stinking thinking and uh, you know just anything that you can do to talk to yourself and make yourself feel good throughout the day will make everybody else around you feel good as well i always say you don't talk to your friends the way you sometimes talk to yourself yeah, emotional osmosis, right? I mean, exactly. you really can influence how the gang feels with even one person being dismal can ob- very quickly change the tone and the tune of the entire group. It's amazing to watch it in action. You know, human nature is uh, quite the phenomenon to behold. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about Karen while we have you this morning? Yep. So if someone wants to uh, come to the meeting, everybody's welcome. You don't have to be a member to come to the meeting. You know, the more the merrier. Um, There is a cost to the breakfast. It's $18 for our members and $20 for non-members. And, of course, it's going to be prepared by the auxiliary at the Royal Canadian Legion, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, We have a Facebook page, so they can just Google us on Facebook or or look us up on Facebook. Or if they want to Google Positive Thinkers Club NL, they will find our website, positivethinkersclub.ca. And uh, in there, they can you know look us up and, and send us a message or anything like that. And I can give the contact information as well once we're done, so you have it. But um, you know, if there's any questions at all, we'd love to see as many people come out next Saturday, June 25th. And if they want to register, the deadline to register is June 20th, because uh, the Legion will be picking up some good fresh food to cook for us on Saturday morning. So we're really excited about getting back in person and seeing some smiling faces again. 100 percent. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Karen. Hope you have a pleasant day. You too, Patty. Take Thank care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Karen Humby, president of the Positive Thinkers Club, Newfoundland Labrador. Will I take the call here now, David? Uh, what do you say? All right, let's go. Line number five. Say good morning to the founder of the Sash Bear Foundation. That's Lynn Corey. Good morning, Lynn. You're on the air. 
Yes, hello, Patty. Thank you for having us over today. Happy to have you on the program. Uh, but I will admit up front, I'm not familiar with the Sash Bear Foundation. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Actually, we're an organization that is uh, recognized as a leading voice for Canadian families impacted by BPD, borderline personality disorder, emotion discrimination, and related mental health challenges. And we're so excited that tomorrow we're having like our first walk on the rock at the uh, Bowering uh, Park at between 9 and noon tomorrow. Fantastic. So where's the walk and what do you hope to achieve with these awareness walks? So like sometimes I've been uh, participating in some of these uh, awareness campaigns and walks and fundraisers over the years. What's it going to look like with the Sash Bear Foundation? Mm. Tomorrow we have a great program. We're inviting everyone. Everyone is welcome to come and join us. Uh, it's really to raise awareness, to show our support to our loved ones who are struggling with uh, mental health challenges, and then to support each other too. And then we're going to have like a live music by Randy uh, Hutchins, and then we're going to have a nice walk like through the uh, Bowering Park, and then uh, there we're going to have like a. Uh, we're going to all be walking together wearing orange and then we'll have a path to uh, the mindfulness bridge we're going to have ways to validate each other we're going to have a written uh, ribbon cutting ceremony we have the mayor there we have some uh, a person from uh, uh, dr rajan coming from the janeway children's hospital to uh, speak about the importance of having families involved uh, in, uh, with uh, the recovery for the recovery of our loved ones, right? It's important that family members uh, support each other and that we learn skills to bring hope in the difficult challenges that we're having at, at times with, uh, with what our loved ones are going through. Can help me understand what DBT is. Yeah, it's a it's a DBT is a dialectical uh, treatment uh, for, like for loved one, and it's a DBT is really based on skills, and uh, the program that the Sash Bear Foundation offer to families are free, and it's based on skills that help family member like to have a better understanding of what their loved one is going through. It's based on emotion regulation. Uh, we uh, show as well the importance of validating our loved one and really understanding what validation is all about. We have great families that uh, uh, did the program here, and they are the one that decided that this year we needed to have a walk on the rock. So it's in Bowering Park um, this Saturday. Do I just show up and participate? Do I have to come and register? What do people need or need to do? Yeah, there's different ways to do it. If you want, you can register online uh, at sashbear.org and have more information on our program, or you just come at 9 o'clock uh, to register uh, at the walk, and it's free. And then we're going to be wearing, like, orange shirt because we find that uh, wearing orange really brings some uh, brightness into our world. I lost my daughter to suicide uh, 10 years ago because we couldn't find uh, the proper services for us to understand more what my daughter was going through and for us as family members finding knowing more what they're going through for us to be more effective in helping them out and then this is what we want to really do with this walk is raise awareness support each other 
and then really like bring hope and for everyone in need and everyone is welcome so is suicide prevention a key focus of your foundation it is for sure okay. it is and you know alarmingly uh, as i read the health accord blueprint uh, document yesterday uh, the suicide rate in this province has tripled since the 1980s exactly and then we know especially during the pandemic too like it seems like everyone is struggling even more and this is why we're so excited that finally we can be together in person and Sash Bear is recognized to be giving great hugs. So if you need a hug, please come and join us tomorrow at 9 at the Bowering Park. And we're going to support each other and support our loved one. Because together, anything is possible. And we're doing it through skills and hope. Terrific. Uh, just for, where can they meet you specifically in Bowering Park? Yeah, the Bowering Park is, we're going to be very close to the... Um, uh, the uh, kids uh, zone like um, the uh, playground by the uh, pool uh, the, like the, yes like the playground like where the playground is and next to uh, the um, the splash pad okay pad. yes yes exactly oh. so this is where we're going to be starting okay and we're going to follow around the bo- uh, the bowering like park road and then we'll have different paths there like we have a path to acceptance we have a mindfulness bridge we have a validation way and then uh, we're going to be walking for about like 5k but then if people prefer to stay put then we have a kid zone we have a, a dog zone uh, we have like great uh, performance so like there is something for everyone i appreciate you making time good luck with the event hope it's a smashing success Thank you so much, and hoping to see you if you're free. <laughs> I, you know what? A Bowering Park uh, stroll doesn't sound too bad at all. Lynn, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Lynn Corey. She's the uh, founder of the Sashbury Foundation. Let's go ahead and take a break. You want me to take Ken right now? Isn't it, no, no, we should take a break here. But appreciate the boys' patience. So Dave, he's there talking about construction. And once again, Brandon Welcher from Karate Canada is there. Ken, appreciate your patience. Ken Cavanaugh from Bell Island talking about doctor shortages. Today, I think, is Dr. A.R.'s last day on Bell Island. So when we come back after I work on my elbow catter, we'll be speaking with the boys. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Ken, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty Daly. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Uh, not not the best, really. Uh, I enjoyed your call with the lady from the Positive Thinkers Club. I'll have to get the uh, the date and address of that next meeting so I can go to it, see if I can get a bit positive. Uh, Before we go too far, uh, their next meeting is the 25th of June, 10 a.m., Saturday, at the Legion. But uh, do you have me on speaker this morning, Ken? Oh, yes, I do. Is that not good? It was, it's a bit hollow for the listeners. If you t- could take us off sure. and pick up okay, the receiver, that would be great. Okay, no, that's okay. I've got it done now. Yeah, okay. Thank, thanks for that uh, notification where the next meeting is at. So, yeah, we, we did have a pretty positive thing happen in the community back about 11, 11 weeks ago. Very hopeful event where we had uh, Dr. A.R. return to the community uh, with the promise of uh, some pretty immediate discussions to see if we could have a, a more permanent arrangement for him to, to stay here. After all, he is a doctor who spent eight years here and actually wanted to come back and wanted to work and live here. But I think what started as a grand reduction or grand seduction is now 
moving more towards the grand rejection. I know there still could be some time to have an agreement, but as you said in your preamble earlier, uh, he is leaving Bell Island today and flying out of St. John's uh, tomorrow. And to my knowledge, there is no uh, no agreement in place where he can come back here. Uh, so i, I got to be honest. I, I spoke to another media earlier this morning about 7 o'clock. I, 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 I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And I just don't know what's got to be done next, but I just think it's absolutely shameless that we have a doctor uh, who uh, came back here, wanted to stay here, and in less than 12 months is leaving Bell Island for the second time. Ken, I spoke with Verna the other day, uh, and I asked her, you know, what is, what particularly is keeping Dr. A.R. from staying? We're like, where's the, the hiccup here? Well, I'm not trying to be sassy here, Patty, but I, I'm not going to assume this to, to uh, a couple of people the last few days who've come to me. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to talk about Dr. Ayer's personal negotiations with, with, with the employer. As you know, you don't negotiate in public. I'm not his agent. Uh, I do have some information that I promised I would keep confidential. I kind of know what some of the issues are. Uh, there are some people claiming they know uh, what his issues are, and they don't really know. Uh, all I'm saying is that whatever they are, uh, I don't think there was the proper process put in place where they actually sat down and had a serious, respectful, one-on-one conversation with him to discuss what he needs. And let me just let me just paint a picture for you, Patty. So picture yourself. Uh, you know, when Bell Island started 2021, we had three doctors. By the end of 2021, we had zero. So 11 weeks ago. You come back to this community uh, hoping that there's going to be some sort of a serious discussion where you're going to perhaps stay here for a long time. Uh, You go into the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh week of your locum here, and there's no firm contract in mind. What would you do? Uh, I'm not sure, I suppose. Uh, Would you look for another job? Pardon me? Would you look for another job? Because, I mean, when 11 weeks is up, he doesn't have a job. So what's happened, and by the way, the only time he got a firm offer was last Thursday. I, I, I had a very brief meeting, and I do appreciate how accessible uh, the new CEO of Eastern Health is, uh, Mr. Kenneth Beard. I met with him and one of his vice presidents to present that petition that was done on the line. It had 1,017 signatures. Uh, it was at that point that I was notified that just the day before, so eight days before the man is to leave, he was finally given some sort of a contract that was sent to him. Uh, and instead of you know, uh, instead of being one that he found was worth signing and, and looking at, I, I guess obviously it, whatever was in it is not enough to, to keep him here. So I, I don't know really what to say next. It is I, I am so frustrated. Uh, we are in the midst of a crisis here: 125,000 people without without a family doctor, and we had one that was here and we couldn't keep him. Something is wrong with our system here. No wonder we're in crisis. And I wasn't trying to get you to betray his confidence. No, no. Just, you know, understanding why doctors are leaving helps us maybe fill the gaps to ensure that the next doctor stays. That's the only reason I ask, because we all talk about the exit interviews to understand exactly what the issues are so that we can address them. That's why I asked that particular question. And that's fine. You know, it's just that I just want to make it clear that I don't want to do that. All Uh, good. And that's between CEO or the Eastern Health and certainly Dr. Ayer. And I still think there could be 
a possibility. But uh, even if he were to return, I don't know what his next gig is. But he's got he's got uh, a gig in back in Ontario, uh, which I think is unfortunate. When something could have been arranged where he might have had to go home and and straighten out some affairs and visit his family, but he would have been back here relatively soon. Uh, that that's certainly not going to happen now. So I, I don't know. I just I just find it so frustrating. You talk about the exit interview, and I think. Uh, you know, Eastern Health needs to sit back and look at uh, when they pay lip service, and the same with Minister Haggy and, and the new Assistant Deputy Minister, Dr. Megan Hayes, who's responsible for professional health recruitment and retention. When they say retention, what is their strategy? What's in the retention toolkit? What incentives? What do they actually do? Or what power and authority do they have to retain a doctor in a community? Uh, whatever was needed to get, get this doctor to stay here, I don't think was properly explored. And if we're going to get doctors in, in rural Newfoundland, it's got to be done community by community because what works on Bell Island may not work for Stephenville or some other part of the province. Sure. So I think Eastern Health fell down on the job, Patty. I, 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 they dropped a ball on this one, and I am so frustrated. Uh, it was nice to hear MHA on the day Dr. Ayer is leaving uh, comment about the importance of a lifestyle for Dr. Ayer, but I think it's probably a little bit too late for that. I appreciate the time, Ken. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. You take care. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you too, Ken. Pardon me. Uh, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Brandon Welcher with Karate Canada. Good morning, Brandon. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Can you hear me good? I can hear you pretty well. Once again, are you on speaker? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, let's just Let get her going get here. To another location there now. Give me one second. Yeah, sounds pretty good. So we all know what's tripped up so many events during COVID. So for the first time since 2019, the Karate Nationals are back. It's just a couple of weeks to go. What's happening? Uh, so we have uh, Karate Canada National Championships happening in St. John's on the 1st to the 3rd of July. And uh, we have athletes from all over Canada coming uh, down to compete. It's being hosted at the Mary Brown Centre. Uh, tickets are available at the box office right now for anybody who wants to come watch. Uh, I can say that we, I know in Newfoundland, have a stellar team going to compete. It'd be great if we could have as many people come by to uh, come see our athletes compete as possible. So how do we stack up? How do we stack up? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we stack up really well. Uh, we're putting out world-class athletes. We have a great coaching committee, an excellent uh, board of directors here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I know I had the privilege of going to watch our athletes compete at Atlantic's Championships uh, back in April. And that was when they were stacked up against provincial teams from New Brunswick, from PEI, from Nova Scotia, and they performed absolutely superbly. They came back with medals. We did extremely well at the tournament. Uh, and I got to say, we did absolutely fantastic and represented Newfoundland really well. Uh, I've been to karate tournaments in the past. One of my boys was a brown belt uh, when he first started in karate, and then he just aged out. He had to wait so long for black belt. He just kind of grew away from it, which I thought was really unfortunate. So just describe, I've been to the tournaments. It's really quite the buzz in the building when you go to a karate tournament. There'll be areas where they're displaying their katas. There'll be some uh, areas where they're, I, I don't know if the right word is fighting, some of the combat zones. So just paint the picture while people will see if they walk in the Mary Brown Center during the finals, or the nationals, pardon me. 
<laughs> well, I'll agree with you, Patty. If your young guy was in it, uh, it can take years off your life <laughs> sometimes watching your kid compete. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's always good to see them have fun and enjoy themselves and learn some assertiveness with competition. Uh, definitely, what, there's basically two categories where they're going to be competing. There's going to be kata, and uh, that's, of course, the sort of patterns you've seen them do. Some people might have seen it if they watched the Olympics in Tokyo uh, where they sort of just – it's almost like uh, it's a performed pattern of techniques. And these be uh, done with a lot of crispness and speed and power. Uh, and then, of course, there's one that's really, really popular, which is uh, kumite, which is just sparring, so contact sparring. A lot of people call that fighting. Uh, but that's their uh, form of competition, and uh, that's where you'll see uh, a lot of the meat and potatoes of the competition right there is uh, in kumite. It's brilliant. It's really a sight to behold, especially when you see the the younger boys and girls, just how quickly they latch on to the katas, the choreographed performance, and the, the swift nature of it, and the thrusting. It's just really cool for anyone who's ever seen young people learn karate for for the first time. So I'm glad to hear that we uh, we do well as a province and we have got some world-class athletes who are going to be participating. Give the folks uh, an idea why you think the martial arts can be important because I knew what it meant for Jack. He really did learn a lot, but whether it be about flexibility and or endurance, but there's an emotional co- concept or co- uh, there's emotional issues that are also addressed. And self-control and self-defense, it's a really wide range and positive impact for people who take karate or any of the martial arts. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree, Patty. I mean, uh, you know, it's always good to be an athlete. It gets you in shape, but uh, definitely, like you said, there's a mental component to it. I mean, it definitely teaches uh, not just self-defense, but also assertiveness, self-confidence. Uh, it's always a pleasure to watch them grow and develop. I mean, I know how I have one athlete competing at this tournament from my dojo, and I've seen her develop since she was five years old, going right up to now she's 16, and uh, seeing them grow and sort of mature in a way that gets them comfortable with competition and building camaraderie with people around them and leadership skills, teaching classes, things like that it's uh, it's a great program uh, to be in it's a great activity to be involved in especially when they start young uh, because they grow that skill set of uh, you know facing adversity and overcoming it so you have your own dojo i didn't know that brandon so where are you in the karate world what classification would you be uh, referred to as <laughs> uh, well i'm on the board of directors uh, of karate newfoundland and labrador uh, so I do also run my own dojo. Uh, I'm really the lead instructor for the dojo. I don't really technically own the dojo. The dojo is owned by a gentleman named Paul Porter. Uh, he's a fifth degree black belt in Weichi Ru Karate, uh, and he brought it into Newfoundland from Nova Scotia. Uh, and I am a second degree black belt in Weichi Ru. So I teach at my own dojo, but I'm also involved uh, with the board of directors. Fantastic. And that's what I, I was searching for the right words, the classification, you know, what degree of black belt you might have been. Okay, that's cool uh so still looking for any sponsors or because i've been involved in these types of events man it takes a lot of volunteers it takes a lot of time and effort and sponsorship Oh, absolutely. So uh, anybody who would be interested in sponsorship, uh, they can definitely go on the Karate NL website, just KarateNL.com, and you can get in contact with our fundraising committee, or if you're interested in volunteering, same thing, you can go on the website. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, organization to be involved with. Anybody, any students out there looking for volunteer hours, any students in high school, my understanding, I know when I graduated high school in Newfoundland, uh, you had to do 30 hours of volunteer work. I think that's still the case. Uh, anybody who's interested in uh, helping out with the tournament, they're more than welcome to. You just got to go on the website and fill out the form, and uh, we can get you involved. And like I said, it's a really rewarding experience. I can say that, you know, uh, for myself being involved in it. Uh, and uh, also, you know, uh, any parents or anyone who hasn't sort of pulled the trigger on getting involved yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's uh, it's a great thing to get involved in and see, and see what your child's doing as well with, when they're competing. Awesome. How many athletes are going to be participating? 
Uh, I know at Atlantics we had 112 athletes. Uh, well, Patty, I can't give you exact numbers, but I'll let you do the math. I know we have something like 20 students on our provincial team, something like a dozen to 20. Uh, now multiply that by 10 provinces. And then add in officials, add in coaches, add in spectators, add in chaperones. Uh, you're looking at a, a few hundred people for sure are going to be showing up to uh, the Mary Brown Centre, and it should be a big, uh, high-energy event. Alison, good luck with it. Hopefully it's a huge success for all of the participating athletes, especially ours. No, absolutely. I think it's going to be a really big success. I'm looking forward to seeing them compete. I'll be officiating at it myself, uh, but uh, I'm really looking forward to the competition for sure. Good to have you on, Brandon. Good luck. All right. Uh, before I leave, Patty, I just want to say send a big thank you out there to all our volunteers, everybody who's already involved. Uh, every bit of work you do is really appreciated. And uh, I got to say, Newfoundland is going to put forward a stellar effort and a set of world-class athletes training 10 to 12 hours every week. And I'm sure they're going to do a great job. I can't wait to see them succeed. Bravo. Go get them. Thanks, Brandon. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too, man. Bye-bye. That's Brandon Welcher with Karate Canada. There you go. Second-degree black belt. Perfect. Let's take a break. When we come back, Dave's out in Kilbride wants to talk about construction. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to the top of the board. Line number one. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Morning, sir. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? I was out for a walk this morning, as I always do when I sit in the walk. And uh, walking down the main road near the ghouls, refusing a lot of that uh, new water, new uh, force main they're putting in, sewer main. And by fusing, is you melt the ends of the point and push them together, and there's a fair bit of residue of plastic they shave off after. And it's not being cleaned up, and that's a microplastic. That's going to end up, I would say, in the storm drains and eventually probably down in the salt water somewhere. Yeah, of course it is. It's going to go somewhere. Uh, so, you know... Like, I, I've, I've worked at it before, or been around it, I should say. And while you're waiting for the pipes to fuse, you, there's a fair bit of uh, downtime, but you can be at something else. But those guys are just standing up, and, well, I guess no one told them that they should clean this up. What are, I don't know if it's in the contract, but it should be. There's a fair amount of, of, of shaved plastic, blue plastic, all over the place up there, right? And not being cleaned. So if it's not cleaned up does it, before it blows around or whatever, does it simply just get buried with the pipe? No, because, see, what happens is uh, when you're doing a force main like that and you're fusing the, the, the pipe together, what happens is you already got a, a pipe underground or you do directional drilling, but you don't do directional drilling in this in this case, especially here in Newfoundland, it's so much rock. But uh, there was an old pipe installed that's bigger diameter than the one that they've... Uh, they're, they're installing. So what they're doing, to minimize the, the, the tear up, of course, and, and it's a good idea. They're uh, just digging down on this pipe, opening it up, open up a trench, I don't know, 15, 20 feet, whatever it is. You fuse your pipe together, you push a line through, and you go to the next area, dig up, and you pull that pipe through. So you're saving a lot of excavation and tear up, right? So <clears throat> that don't get buried. That's just laying on the street. Okay. Blown around. You would imagine, like, I, I don't know why these things happen, because if I'm letting a contract, like, even if I have a contractor do some work at my home, clean up is part of the gig. You know, demolition, do the repair, clean up. It's, you know, it's a three-step process. It's not just about doing the work. Cleaning up should be just mandatory part of getting a contract. Well, uh, in my mind, it is, but uh, 
I, I called them before, I mean, because there's a lot of people walk here. And uh, after the, the installation, and they push back and say they just backed over the crushed stone and, you know, got her up ready for asphalt or getting ready for asphalt. You know, there should be a street sweeper going along and cleaning up the rocks because there's dust and rocks going everywhere, right? You know, when driving. And, and But this is a bit more serious. It's microplastic. And, you know, we're talking about Sobey's bag. Man, this is a way... Way more damaging to the, to the environment than Sobeys, or any plastic bag, I should say. I shouldn't say Sobeys. I don't mean that, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And so this would be relatively thick plastic too, would it? Well, it's that depends. Uh, usually, when you shave it off, it probably comes off fairly thin, which which lends to it to blow around, right? And and you know it's up against the curb, and you get a, a rain. It's going to wash down your catch basin. You know what's going to happen then, right? Absolutely. So. You know, the issue of plastic pollution, especially you get into the micro world, and people say, ah, we're just talking about garbage. No, it's worse than that. You know, there's reviews done of just how much plastic is consumed by marine mammals alone. And so consequently, part of the food chain is me eating plastic. So this is a bigger oh. deal than just a mess. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, and, and, and there's no need. I mean, uh, like you said earlier, that uh, the contract is out. I'm sure cleanup is part of it. You would think so. So so I, I would think uh, right now, where they haven't done it for a number of days, there would be a fair bit of, you know, sweeping and going to get it. But once you got it down to that, then, hey, you fuse a pipe, and it's all within the tent because you got an enclosure to keep the wind off, you know, for your heat. So you just take a, a broom and clean it up and put it in the bag and, you know, like as they say, Bob's your uncle, right? <laughs> I appreciate the but, time this morning. Any, anything else you want to say, Dave? No, no, I, that's it. It's just that the, I think they should look into this. I called the city already and asked for the project engineer to look into it, but, uh, you know, uh, it shouldn't be. I mean, clean up is a part of the construction, as you said. It should be anyway. Good to have you on the program, Dave. Have a nice weekend. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Just wanted to talk to you about the non-announcement yesterday. I guess it was interesting because in your preamble yesterday morning, you had talked about your hope that Freeland's announcement wasn't going to be a re-announcement of things we've seen in the budget. And guess what? That's exactly what it was. We we did not get uh, the direction we thought we might get on reducing some of the significant costs to people in taxation on gasoline, you know, whether it's adjustments to the federal excise tax, whether it's adjustments to the GST, or whether, in fact, there was going to be a cease on this carbon tax for a period of time. None of that happened yesterday. Yeah, there's some, you know, the areas where we've seen increased benefits, we knew all this based on the budget, so really, really, legitimately nothing new to see there yesterday. Ch Canada Child Benefit the 10% increase on OAS for those 75 years of age and older, guaranteed income supplement. Uh, but I think it's part, stuff, but yeah, it's all reasonably good stuff. Sure, it, you know, it focuses in on about, I think, 5 million Canadians will be direct recipients of some of these increases. But when something is couched as processes and policies to reduce or to combat inflation, I'm no economist, but more money for less goods 
does not equal reducing inflation. So some price point pressure relief is a different thing than more money in my pocket. Because, I mean, corporate profits at a 70-year high, we don't really talk much about that. We just play the blame game and political rhetoric regarding inflation when this is a, you know, this is to to compensate for inflation as opposed to combat inflation. And people, you know, really go wild after Trudeau when he talks about monetary policy, and that's not his focus. Well, fiscal policy is government's bag. The Bank of Canada is the monetary policy organization, if we're being honest about these things. But we need to hear more from the Bank of Canada as opposed to just simply jacking up rights. Yeah, and that and that's again that's where that that resolve is in terms of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and indeed some of the people of Canada. You know that immediate relief at the pumps or at the fuel oil is not there, and and the carbon tax. I mean that was brought in to deter people, you know, try to prevent less travel and all those, and you know. It's an unfair tax for Newfoundland and Labrador, no matter what way you cut it, because we do not have the advantages of alternate transportation methods. We do not have subways. We do not have trains. And for the most part, outside of the metro region, there is no bus transportation. So people have very few options. And right now, it's the working poor and the people who have to travel to work every single day, uh, you know, and drive significant distances that are paying the price for this. The people who have to travel for medical appointments are paying the price for this. And it wasn't that long ago that the Liberal government here in Newfoundland and Labrador, along with the NDP, stood up and voted for an increase in carbon tax. I would make this point, and maybe people will agree with it or not agree with it, but we often talk about per capita, what we do per capita, whether you know we're the highest per capita or lowest per capita. I would argue that the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, on a per capita basis, have contributed more to making Canada greener than any other province in the country. And I say that based on, of course, the Upper Churchill contract from years ago, which a green project long before green was even popular and has contributed billions, of course, to Quebec. Now we have our Muskrat Falls that we're paying for. That's billions of dollars. That was a project that was sanctioned by the federal government with a loan guarantee from the federal government. And the reason it was done that, the reason they did that, is because it not only benefited the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, it was meant to help Nova Scotia reduce their consumption of coal. Yeah, which is still at around 50%, which is remarkable this day and age. Look, both the Conservatives and the Liberals federally would agree with your statement based on the fact that both of those parties uh, gave out federal loan guarantees. In fact, I think you can carefully say it's three. You know, the first one, $5 billion from the uh, Harper Conservatives. Then I think it was $3.9 billion. And then, of course, with this additional deal at the $5.2 billion, which is a little bit confusing, there was a billion dollars in there that we borrow on the federal government's rights. So they, all parties federally have agreed with the green concept and the building and the Nova Scotia and coal, all those things. That's true. Uh, just quickly on the excise tax. You know, the province purposefully negotiated a bilateral agreement on the carbon tax. The money flows directly to the province. And at this moment in time, since the 1st of May, it's about 11 cents. The federal excise tax actually hasn't changed since 1987, and that's 10 cents per liter. It's, it's kind of remarkable that that hasn't changed, and I wouldn't hold my breath for the federal government to do anything about that now or anywhere in the future. But a carbon tax suspension... You know, especially in the province where it's earmarked for green or alternative energy pro- projects and what have you, there's no way we're spending all that money on these alternative projects. There's certainly a way where we could say, you know, a three-month a three month hiatus, whether it be half of the gas tax, so about eight cents or five, seven and a half cents, and or a break on 11 cents. You know, it's not a huge, huge, huge savings for the individual, but it's something, and it's meaningful. And it's not a huge reduction in the amount of money coming into the province, even though I know we're broken, I know we're boring, I know all those things, but... 
who's better served to weather a financial storm? Me or the government? And I think we're very quickly coming to the point where it is the government, by and large. You know, there will be a segment of society that can absorb these increased costs, but the vast majority are having a mighty struggle. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Patty. But two, two points I guess I'd make. One, on, the, on this idea of loan guarantees. It's great that both different governments, the federal governments, both uh, conservative and liberals, have provided loan guarantees. But federal governments also took out a equity stake in a uh, pipeline in Western Canada. They didn't take an equity stake in Muskrat Falls. They gave us loan guarantees. Of course, they've helped pay off the rate mitigation. You know, so there's a big difference between sure. an equity stake and a loan guarantee, because a loan guarantee means we're still responsible for going out and borrowing the money. And that's a, that's a challenge for us. And that's why I think, that, you know, in terms of this whole idea of, you know, if we're going to contribute, and we talk about the Muskrat Falls now as being part of an Atlantic loop and the benefits and all of that, that that's where we've got to be pushing the federal government. Is Look, loan guarantees are great. But we need the federal government to step up and take an equity share in these projects as well. And that's a, that's one point that I think that uh, we should be harping on. I think that's one point that the government should be uh, pressing the federal government to do. And and uh, it's not just about loan guarantees. Yeah, well, the federal government's uh, equity stake in Trans Mountain is 100. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Exactly. It's going to cost more than Muskrat Falls, for sure. Work is ongoing right now, but that price tag is going to be massive. I, I guess their plan there is to, once it's built to try to offload it but you're never going to get the, all the monies back that it's going to cost to develop uh, appreciate the time anything else tony before we go to the news no that's fantastic patty you have a great weekend you too take care bye-bye Bye. that's tony wakeham the pc member for stephenville port of port uh let's take a break when we come back i read this story in the news it's about an egyptian kickboxer who made his way to the province i think back in 2017 to attend memorial university things went sideways now it looks like he's being deported brian wants to talk about that story after this don't go away Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Bram, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. Uh, That's a wonderful day in Cornerbrook. Glad to hear it. I uh, I just got a topic here about this young man from Egypt. Uh, It's like the port noise all over again. You know, they it, it, it deported a family of, uh, uh, you know, immigrants, we'll call them, that had, you know, Newfoundland babies. Yeah, now that's right. Young man, so what, young just man, before we go any further, so the Portnoys, they, they took sanctuary in a church for a long while or something. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, they did. And and soon as the young man, like, he had a business going on his own, uh, raising children. He had a, I think he had two children that were born in Newfoundland, but they still... Soon as the RCMP had a chance to see him on the highway, they, they nabbed him and sent him away. And what was the reason behind that? Because this one here is uh, the young man came and he had uh, a permit to be in the country as a university student, but then he had an interruption in his study. So what was the reason for the Portnoy's again? Well, it was practically the same thing. They, they came here like as immigrants and waiting for their papers and that sort of thing. Well, they're illegal immigrants, I guess they called them at the time. And Danny Williams was running Newfoundland at the time. And, you know, I think... Somebody should have stepped in and helped those people because I haven't heard a word on them since. I don't know if they're still on the earth, you know, because they said they didn't want to go back because of, uh, you know, probably be put in jail and that sort of thing, right? But I don't really know what happened to them, and I'd just like to find out. But this young man, if there's anybody can help this man, because he's helping a young man that's uh, nine years old that's being bullied, and I know what it's like to be bullied because I went through it all my life. 
and you know they're going to drive them away so that the mother was there saying that the little boys have to come out of his shell or son right and uh, mm-hmm. and he's, he's donating his time he's doing it free and they're just going to say come on boy we don't need you but still for all Mr. Burns can go and get a, a plain load of people that needs the same kind of help so I think there should be a politician here in this province to step in unless there's a smart woman that'd like to get a good man to marry him um, well, I mean, the the province has very little authority on that front. We can bring in refugees, immigrants, and people on the pathway to permanent residency, citizenship, but it's all federally regulated and federal laws enforced. So, you know, there, yeah. the, the interruption in the study permit is extremely unfortunate. When you factor in that he didn't come here under uh, any sort of pretense and, you know, was pretending to be a university student, he was. And now all of a sudden the family couldn't afford it any longer and he couldn't get any money to go back to school then things change and he reapplied he's been denied uh, looking for a compassionate or humanitarian uh, exemption at this point and that's been denied the country's had a bit of a tattered history on that front in 2021 I'll try to remember these numbers somewhere around 40 odd percent of applicants were denied for the humanitarian or compassionate applications this year it's dropped to somewhere in the low 20s but this guy seems like the exact kind of immigrant that people should be opening their arms to so I know he's got a lawyer working on it I don't know what's going to become of it, but it's a it's an unfortunate story, I'll say. Well, the thing is, he called himself a Newfoundlander, and he got five medals. You know, for for Newfoundland. I mean, what else? What else should he do? You know, cut off one of his arms? Yeah, it's uh, it's terrible. That's you know, it was kind of through no fault of his own that he studied permit got interrupted. But I don't know where we land on this one. Yeah, well, I think if he got married. You know what I mean? Because people do it all the time. They keep their partner in Canada, and and somebody should step up. I don't. I mean, I'd marry him, but I'm a man. I, you know, I'm not that kind of a guy, right? Well, and you know, it's, I don't know what his orientation is, but I don't know what's going to become of the young fellow. But he seems, based on the stories that I've read, seems to be top quality young fellow, working hard, wants to be here. And uh, anyway, Bram. Look, all I get to do is look up the CBC News last night. I, don't, I didn't mean to say it, but it, it's on there last night. And I had to watch it three times to understand what the problem is with this young man. He's beautiful, for one thing, you know, in his personality and his looks. And, he, and he's helping this little boy free of charge. I mean, what else can he do? Yeah. And I got another, uh, just one little topic here. It's, it's like, you know, when the police go out and stop a guy in the hallway or a woman or somebody... Uh, when they walk up to him to give him a ticket, they should pass through the rule book. Say, boys, read the rule book. Come back and I'll do a, a short quiz to see if you know what you learned when you first got your license. Because it's amazing that how many fingers and horns I get here in Cornerbrook that is, and I'm doing the right thing. I just because last week I had to phone a company and tell them what their driver did. Three signs that give me the right of way, he's still cut in front of me. And it's, it's amazing how people take chances when they don't have to. It's amazing. Well, you don't need to tell me. It's certainly one of my pet peeves is watching how so many motorists behave behind the wheel. I was coming out of a parking lot on uh, Torbay Road the other day, and this guy, in it looked to be a brand new Kia Soul, ball cap on, and he was absolutely flying and ducking in and out of the lanes. It just yep. about had an, an accident as he approached the Canadian Tower gas station. So beep, 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 fingers are flying everywhere. He raced as fast as he possibly could and just had to stop at the red light like everyone else at Holly States. Like, where are you going? Yeah, so true. But well, I got one more thing to say. You said there was a woman phone last week about a wheelchair. She was selling the wheelchair or giving it away? Giving it away. 
okay, well, I'm, I'm in the same position. My wife got MS, and I'm working on it with her. Like, she can't use it anymore. And it's, it's about a half a kilometer on the chair, and this thing is $32,000, and it's still shiny. And we're trying to debate whether to keep it and get it done so that she can control it with her mouth, but it seems like that's not going to work. So uh, between the jigs and the reels, I I might sell it. I'm not sure because giving it away a brand-new machine is, you know, it's a lot of money. I know people need things, and I've given away a lot of stuff to people that she's had over the years. But this thing, you know, is uh, it's the price of a small car, right? You understood. Yeah, we did find a home for that lady's electric wheelchair after all yesterday. So I'll keep people uh, informed. Now, let's listen. That This will probably come up at a later date, uh, you know, in a week or two maybe, uh, when we decide. Because, you know, she's got MS and she can't let go, you know, the things that she owns. I understand. So thank you for your time, and you're doing a great job. Appreciate it, Bram. Keep us in the loop with uh, what you decide to do. Okay, my friend. Have right. a lovely weekend. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the United Canadian Transportation Employees. They're a part of PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada. His name is Mike Johnson. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. This is the first time caller to your show. Welcome to the show, sir. I know there's a big uh, event taking place here over the course of this weekend. What's your role, sir? The National Union of Public and General Employees. So I represent uh, 540 members. I am the president for the local of 90915. Uh, we take in the ship's crews. We have lightkeepers under my uh, local. We got members of the Marine Rescue Subcenter in our group. We have operations. We have the environmental response. So we, we do a wide range of Coast Guard employees with, under our local. And so what goes on at this particular convention? Because different locals representing different workers will have many different issues, whether it be for uh, benefits packages, negotiations, or what have you. So what is the focus of this particular national convention? So the particular thing on this, I mean, we've been, we've been uh, negotiating since June of last year with Treasury Board, and it seems they don't want to... Uh, you know, uh, give us a fair wage. I mean, we've been dealing with Phoenix. Uh, we've been dealing with COVID the last two years. We're always stepped up to the plate. I mean, I look at ourselves as an algae of an ambulance driver with regards to uh, search and rescue. I mean, we're there to any kinds of weather. We are there for, for Canada. So there's been, you know, there's a big change in the landscape of unions, their role, their clout or leverage that they've had in the past as opposed to where they are today. Am I reading the tea leaves properly there to see that unions, you know, of course, they brought a lot of important uh, features to uh, the employees, unionized or non-unionized, five-day work week, sick days, you know, safe workplaces and the like. Have things changed for unions just in even how they operate, given some of the change in the politics over the years? Yeah, uh, well, I I can see some changes. I mean, I mean, we're you know we're dealing in the in the world of uh, post pandemic. Uh, I mean, to you know, I I hard to put it. Uh, I guess to, to, to explain that, but uh, it seems maybe the younger people uh, take a different avenue on uh, regards to the unions. Uh, I mean, I I mean, I fight every other day with dealing with many matters within the, within the Coast Guard within our members, but uh, it's yeah, it seems to be changes in the, in the union uh, these days for sure. So I think it also says on my uh, subject line here, there's a rally. Is that what that says, Dave? 
That is correct, Dr. Patty. Uh, we have a rally planned for noon today, which will start at the old Coast Guard base and end at the new site there, uh, starting at 12. So it's it's around the uh, again, again the bargaining. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, like I said, some of the points here at Treasury Board really appreciate federal government workers. They will come to the bargaining table with a fair wage offer that keeps us with, you know, skyrocketing inflation and doesn't leave workers behind. I mean, that's the, some of the challenge. And I know we're also on top of this rally. Uh, we have, uh, we're during the process of tearing down the old site there, the old Coast Guard base. And a lot of my members have been dealing with the parking. The parking, it's been atrocious. And as anybody have drove down Southside Road, it's been a challenge. Uh, the management hasn't really come to the table. I've been dealing with this since February. So that's another thing, part of the rally today, too. I appreciate making time for the show this morning. Mike, would you like to say anything else, sir, before we say goodbye? Uh, no, Patty, just uh, any members under my local want to be there for 12 o'clock today to take partake in the rally. And again, Patty, thank you for your time today. Appreciate yours, Mike. Stay in touch. Okay, thanks. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Mike Johnson, President of the United Canadian Transportation Employees. They are a part of PSAC. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Memorial University Professor of Psychology, Biology, and Ocean Sciences is Dr. Bill Montevecchi. He has thoughts on the Cormorant call. We'll hear from Bill right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Mr. Uh, Dr. Montevecchi had to step away for a second. We'll get him back, but let's go to line number five. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number five. Caller, you are on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, it's Patty. Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi. I didn't know I was up next. Uh, I'm first time caller, nervous. Uh, I just want to run something by you. I was just wondering who to complain with. Um, we had, I'm calling from the centre, and, and I had a medical appointment in St. John's last week. Um, so I decided, uh, we decided to uh, book a hotel room and spend the night because we haven't been in, in town since COVID. Uh, we book, booked a room. I guess my husband went online and booked a room, uh, you know, to spend the night. And... Uh, or he, he went online, I guess, to find the number of the certain hotel. Uh, it came up, okay, you can book online. So he said, oh, I can book online. I don't have to call. So I, he booked online. Come to find out, it was through Expedia, uh, the booking. Uh, we were quote $194. Well, when we got the confirmation, it was 284 89 Okay, that's fine. Plus tax, uh, and it was twenty six thirty five service charge. Uh, a grand total from one ninety four. Uh, we're out now three seventy five fifty eight. No cancellation, no refund or anything, and we're charged America. The hotel booking sites. Uh I think some of what goes on is completely dishonest. They fold their fees right in with the government taxes and the like. So it's hard to even know what you're paying one of these sites yeah. for their services here. So that's where it gets extremely difficult. But like everything else, when you see a number quote, the price tag for whatever, booking a hotel, renting a car, whatever it is, or, or booking an airline ticket, until you get to the end and see what the total is, you completely feel misled because what was something that was $199 
dollars all of a sudden it's two hundred and ninety nine dollars with all these additional fees what have you so i'm not sure if there's a formal place to complain about one booking site or another to be honest yeah yeah Oh, well, I guess they're just blown away, and and we couldn't cancel or change it, so we end up having to, to take it. And I said to the girl on the reception desk, I said, "Well, what's the uh, what's the services? Because there's no breakfast or nothing included or, or parking." Um, I said, well, "What's these twenty six thirty five service charge?" She said, "I don't know." Like, like, with no compassion or, or no, I'm sorry, like, out of the hotel. Well, I guess what I can't understand is why the hotels let American, you know, I don't know, I'm last for words. I'm just puzzled over it. Well, for the hotels, you know, they, it's casting on their net as wide as possible because if you're not on sure. some of these sites which are so popular, you're absolutely losing out on potential customers. So whether it be Kayak or Hotels.com or Expedia or whatever else, if yeah. you're not part of that world, you're really just, it's and a I self-inflicted financial wound. I'm a little bit hotel. older and, and in the, yeah. I mean, I'm in the 60s and I guess I'm not up on all the times. <laughs> But I, I was just puzzling. I, I, I didn't know. It was just blowing me away for one night, almost $400. And <laughs> it's extreme. It really is. Yeah. It's costly to do anything, and, you know, whether we get on and an I aircraft or stay at a hotel or rent a car. It's tricky business out there. Yeah, I just, I guess I just wanted to put it out there for a lot of Newfoundlanders or anyone traveling. I guess one of those things, buyer, buyer beware, or, because we've got a lot of people booking and, and not realizing that, Really, it's fraud, or I guess they're getting ripped off. Well, you really making a bad name for the hotels as well. Yeah, and of course, the hotels really sometimes get caught up in something that might not be of their doing. You know, whatever a specific charge is coming from a hotel, that will impact their return uh, guests, uh, the potential for return guests. But with these booking sites, like they're nameless and faceless, there's nowhere to go, no one to complain to. You can't yeah. reach out and touch them. You can't go to the front desk of Expedia.com and get some mm-hmm. discussion going or a rebate or an explanation. So, yeah, it's yeah. fair warning. Get, you got to know what you're getting yourself into. Look at the final sum before you think that, oh, 199 exactly exactly what I need when it comes out to be much more when you go ahead and put your credit card number in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I, I, my thing was just once put out there, you know, I'll, I'll suck up the cost right now. <laughs> I guess I got no choice, but I didn't know if there's anywhere else, you know, to turn to complain as well. Yeah, because I guess not. <laughs> probably not because we're talking about international opportunities, right? If it was a Canadian-based company that fell inside the regulatory bodies, then maybe there's a an opportunity. But the law and governments are so far behind technology and ensuring that the appropriate approaches and fairness are applied to these big tech companies because I mean the technology is advancing so quickly that governments have been unable to keep up so this sure. is one of those examples but it's too bad that it happened to you i wish it hadn't but uh, thanks for the fair warning for the listener Oh, no problem. Thank okay. you. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, I mean, Dr. Montevecchi's back, but we're right up against it, Dave. What should we do? Can you ask Bill if he can wait for after the news? I'll do that quick while I check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. And there's always lots pouring in there. Just let me throw it out there on the email front. I reply to as many emails as I possibly can in the run of a day. So if there's something that you have sent me that I haven't replied to when you're uh, waiting for it just do me a favor and give me a recent because i try to pick away at it from the top down and sometimes that's a little bit 
of a handful, I have to say. Uh, is Mr. Is Dr. Montevecchi able to wait, David? Okay, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and have that conversation afterwards. And here's a quote from his uh, column that he had in the uh, Northeast Avalon Times. This is regarding the Cormorant cult. We are skilled at shirking and ignoring our environmental transgressions and responsibilities in doing so. It is especially convenient to blame other creatures, such as cormorants and seals. The sins of aquaculture and of our fisheries fall, and the cormorants and seals, and if that is not sufficient, we can always blame the scientists and science. We'll hear from Dr. Montevecchi right after this news break. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Now let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Memorial University Professor of Ocean Sciences. That's Dr. Bill Montevecchi. Dr. Montevecchi, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Uh, Dave. I've just been talking to Dave. Hi, Patty. Good to talk to you. Good to have you on, sir. So there was a proposal coming in from some outfitters and the like saying that the cormorants are a problem, whether it be for the wild stock or aquaculture and or the environment. And all of a sudden there's a, a call being, I guess it will be executed. You have to prove it's a problem bird, however you're supposed to do that. But you take exception to this approach. Why so? Well, there's lots of reasons. Um, you know, if, if we're looking, you know, if it, you know, and I, and I think this is the crooks of the problem. I mean, why would this be proposed in the first place? And the proposal is, to my mind, to protect wild Atlantic salmon. And um, there's no evidence. You know, we don't have any scientific evidence that culling an animal will enhance the prey population that it's that it's preying on. So cormorants eat a lot of fish. They probably eat a fair amount of salmon. Um, but to to open it up, you know, I mean, for the provincial government to do this, I mean, in the first instance, to you know, to just be credible, they they should have presented evidence. Now, they're, they're, I'm sure, Patty, there are rivers where there are cormorants, you know, just gorging at the mouth. And yeah, but we should know where they are. There should be some kind of systematic survey to point those out. I know, I mean, I, I'm on the northeast coast a lot. I, you know, I go by Anchor Brook. I see, you know, 20 cormorants at the end of the river. Um, you know, so they could be scared. You know, maybe a couple could be shot. I mean, maybe they're specialists. But to just open this up to the general public with no bag limits, you know, I mean, anything like that to be systematic should really be carried out by, you know, provincial biologists and, and wardens. Uh, you know, just not like an open turkey shoot because there's no real evidence. So, you know, I mean, that's the bottom line. There's no real evidence we're going to do anything to help wild Atlantic salmon with this process. There's a thought out there that this kind of came out of nowhere and maybe was pressure brought to bear by the aquaculture industry because as opposed to a wild hunt in a wild river, you have so many fish in such a small contained area that it's a real gold mine for the cormorant so i don't know if that plays an active role here but so walk us through what would be a scientific approach so what kind of assessments would need to be done to really come up with a plan or a play because even if you put bag limits in place it's just is some of the same bird the uh, seabirds that you uh, study i mean the boys go out or people go out and take their 40 birds even though they're going to eat two and so it just becomes recreation as opposed to food right. food hunting so talk us through a scientific approach to the cormorant 
Sure. Absolutely, Patty. And we should get back to the aquaculture thing that you mentioned. Because, right, uh, because that, well, that's the absolute killer of wild Atlantic salmon, which we tend to, uh, you know, look, look away from and focus on cormorants. But a scientific approach would involve, you know, essentially, I know lots of people that work for, with salmon at DFO. Um, and I ask them, you know, uh, are there cormorants at the end? They're on the rivers all the time. And I ask them, are there cormorants at the ends of the rivers? And sometimes there are, and sometimes there aren't, you know, and I'm surprised when there aren't. But there's lots of instances when they are simply not there. So, I mean, that's where you got to start. I mean, are there problem, you know, are there problem rivers where the cormorants, you know, could be scared away from the mouth? You know, what happens at the mouth of the river is these <laughs> these smolts that are about six inches long, they're coming out of a freshwater habitat. They're shifting into a saltwater, you know, they're going into the ocean. They're shifting into a saltwater habitat. So their whole, you know, sort of osmotic balance, you know, from freshwater to saltwater is changing. And then if you got birds there, um, yeah, it, it, it can be... <laughs> It can be pretty devastating for some of those little critters. I, I have no doubt. But but the question is, where is that happening? And here's and Patty, and you're asking. The thing is, what would you do scientifically? Well, if you're going to do something like this, then you have to assess. Well, what's the effect? You know, so there were so many smokes coming out of the river before we did the cull. And there are this many coming out. And I know there's a lot of variation, but that's the only way you can get any evidence. And the way it's set up now, well, just go out and shoot birds and we hope it works. But we don't we won't know any more after it's all done. We'll have a lot of dead birds. We won't know any more about the problem, focusing on the problem that we did now as they started. We we just would have no evidence. Well, if you don't have data to back up, yeah, I mean, point taken, if you don't have the data to back up the extent of the problem today, you'll never know if anything worked. I agree, and that's you know, and that's where the government should have started. It would have been really easy, I think, with anglers, uh, with hunters, with just people who are out on the rivers, uh, kayakers, to just say, you know, um, or, the, or the wildlife biologists themselves, to just assess the rivers. I, like I said, I you know, I'm on the northeast coast. I go by Anchor Brook. I see a whack of cormorants there. Yeah, I go to other rivers on the northeast coast. I don't see any cormorants. You know, so I mean, maybe that depends on when the smolts are coming out. But but you know. That's that's where we would want to start, rather than just say, um, "Go at it, boys." And I know they say, "Well, you have to have a permit where there's a problem." Well, I don't know how those get vetted or what people say and what evidence they have, you know, other than uh, maybe they just want to shoot cormorants. And and it's a bit it's a bit over the top, you know, as you mentioned about aquaculture. I mean, aquaculture is killing. It. It's it's the you know it's an alien coffin. The scientific evidence is overwhelming in terms of genetics, in terms of ecology, biology, that if you want to save wild Atlantic salmon, the least you can do, the very least you can do is try to get those open sea pens on land. And here we have a government that's just promoting more open sea aquaculture. It's in Placentia Bay now, and, you know, so I, I would expect some, you know, bad consequences for rivers that empty into Placentia Bay because of these new open um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's just paradoxical, Patty, and and, it, and it's easy. The scapegoating thing is easy. Oh, they eat fish. And the other argument, I mean, just so we put it out there, people say, oh, their their feces are toxic. Well, I don't know any animal on the planet that has feces that aren't toxic. Maybe there are some. But the fact of the matter is our water supply is high. I drive by Windsor Lake twice a day. I've been doing that for 30 years. I have never seen one cormorant. I've seen gulls. I've seen osprey. But... You know, so I know a lot of things just get exaggerated. It's easy, you know, to say, oh, the cormorants are the problem. Let's, let's attack the problem. Well, in fact, we're really ignoring the problem and, and just shooting birds. It's probably multi-pronged problems. Uh, and so that's about salmon. But I don't know if this is your ballywick or not, Dr. Montevecchi, but like even protecting some other wild species in the waterways, rivers or otherwise, what's, what's the implication of the brown trout? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, and, and people are, you know, specifically, and um, people were concerned in Bowering Park about the brown trout. And But when we, you know, brown trout are an introduced species, whereas the cormorants are a native species. But, it, you know, so it's, it would be kind of ironic to, you know, cull a native species to save an introduced one. You know, I mean, but that's how much we've mangled, you know, what, what's happening with biodiversity but you know i i i could see uh, you know it's just me but my my well why not scare some corn it should be easy enough to scare them off the rivers you know with blanks uh, you know maybe shoot a few maybe trap a few i mean the problem is is resolvable if if in fact it's really a problem and it, it would be fairly straightforward on a river you know in in the city to document that you know and it's been done before the the densities of brown trout and and just look at what those densities are and and look at them you know pre and post cormorants you know what did we we ha we have densities from the past and we could look at some of them it's not easy I, I don't mean to be glib about this and say it's it's not easy it's very difficult but that's our option as opposed to just going on you know anecdotes really appreciate you making time for the show. Oh, I appreciate your call. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Pat. Bill. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Bill Montevecchi, of course, uh, professor of ocean, scientists, uh, ocean sciences at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, Michelle's in the queue to talk about health care cuts in rural. And Wally Anderson, talk about the passing of Paul the Greek. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Michelle. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, too, I must say. Uh, I'm doing pretty good, considering all I'm after going through to last a little while. And I want to talk to you this morning about uh, the health cuts here on the Vieron Peninsula. If the government keeps cutting things, people will not be, be living. I'm lucky to be alive today because uh, I'm June 5th. Michelle, just before you tell us your story, can you take us off speakerphone so we can hear you more clearly? Okay. Please, and thank you. I'm, I'm very hearing impaired, so that's why I find it easier on speaker. Sorry about that. Well, no, listen, if it's easier for you, then we can go back to you. Do whatever you need to do, but go right ahead. Okay. Well, can you hear me better now? I can. Okay. Uh, well, on June the 5th, uh, well, in the last month or so, I've had three surgeries. I've got diagnosed with cancer uh, uh, in March. And anyway, I had my breasts removed on May the 31st. And on June the 5th, I had a bleed in my chest at 10 o'clock on June the 5th that night. 
And my daughter called the ambulance for me. She saved my life. And the people at the Bureau, I'm going to break down, and I'm sorry, but the people at the Bureau of Health Care saved my life. If I had to go to St. John's, I would not be talking to you today, Patty. I am so thankful to Dr. Ray Pudi, all the staff at the Bureau of Health Care, my sisters, Sherry and Joanne. So we don't need no more cuts in the rural areas. So John and Andrew needs to listen to here that I'm one person that was saved because we had the equipment and we had the doctors and we had the professionals and the staff to help me on June the 5th and June 6th. And Patty, I'm so thankful. So we don't need no more cuts in our service. We don't. The, I don't know what it's going to look like in over the course of the next decade. I know there's going to be uh, changes made to offerings at different clinics and hospitals and hours of operations for some of the smaller centers with smaller population catchments, and that's not to diminish or dismiss their health care c- concerns, pardon me, because you could be living in a small community and have all the related health issues as someone who lives a stone's throw from the Health Sciences Center, so it's going to be important to get this right because you can, we can't cut in healthcare for cut's sake. But what I would also add to that is if, if it was simply about money, we'd have no problems at all because we spend the money. We absolutely yeah. spend a ton of money on healthcare in this province. And people who are mad about Health Accord and some of the uh, recommendations therein, we just got to move away from the status quo. Whatever that looks like to ensure people have adequate access to health care is going to be a balancing act that I'm glad it's not my job. But if we were just talking about spending money, we would be leading the league in positive health care outcomes, but we're not. So we've got to do something. And this health accord is a, a roadmap, and I admit it off the top of the show. It's a 262-page blueprint that I didn't, I didn't get through in its entirety yesterday, but I guess it's part of my weekend reading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, you know, like we got wonderful, wonderful healthcare workers, not only here on the Bureau Peninsula, like I had heart surgery done in St. John's on the 19th. I was the first person actually to get it done instead of having to go to Ottawa. Uh, Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Bowen done it at the Health Science Center, and I've had all kinds of different things done in St. John's and out here. But one thing we do need is we don't need no more cuts. The government's just got to uh, try to get some more doctors to come here and to get more people to come here because our population is declining and we need people from other parts of the world to come here to help us because a lot of the doctors that we do have here, some of them are from here and they're wonderful, but we got a lot that's from other parts of the world and some of them have saved my life the other day. So, like... I just hope that we can uh, get our health care system better than what it, it's been, you know? Well, we're glad you're here to tell us your story this morning, Michelle. Thanks for the time. All right. Thank you, Patty, and uh, thanks for listening. Take good care of yourself. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Wally Anderson. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Patty, I'd like to uh, pay a tribute to uh, Paul Tabinish, uh today, uh, and uh I guess uh, many people may not know uh, Paul the British. They, they know him as Paul the Greek. And uh, his father moved to uh, Brockville, Ontario, many, many years ago. And in the uh, early 70s, Paul and his wife moved to Happy Valley Goose Bay, where they built a home for him and their children. Uh, Paul was uh, a man with a heart of gold. Uh, he, uh, he won two by-elections and served on the council. Uh, a, a, 
almost every funeral that uh, there would be a knock on the door and there would be two or three pizzas uh, delivered to people. Uh, he helped with uh, people on the coast and anyone in need. And uh, he was, uh, he was a, a pillar of uh, happiness in our community. Paul lost uh, his life last night and uh, to his wife, Joanna, and uh, to his uh, two children, Nick, uh, and his daughter, Dimitri, and their grandchildren. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there's a, a lot of people across uh, Newfoundland and Labrador that, uh, you know, politicians and everyone who come uh, into Goose Bay from Labrador City or from the Isle or from the mainland, they wouldn't leave without having a meal at El Greco restaurant. And uh, someone who came here, uh, uh, I guess from a foreign country, uh, made uh, Newfoundland and Labrador their home. Uh, I think speaks well that uh, this is a good place to uh, for people to build a home and to uh, build a family. And Paul the Greek was certainly a, a spitting image of, uh, of that kind of person. And uh, he will be dearly missed. And uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of all the residents of Happy Valley, Goose Bay, and elsewhere that... Uh, to his wife, Joanna, and their family that are with us and prayers are with them. I, I, I did not know the man, but, you know, people who have that sort of massive positive impact in their community, I'm sure it's a loss that will be felt by many in your area. It will be, Patty. And uh, as I said, I'm, I'm sure there are people today who are listening to, uh, to uh, your line, uh, open line to the end. They my God, yeah, I was in his restaurant. I knew him. Uh, what a wonderful man. Uh, he always took the time to sit down and talk to customers, and uh, quite often there was time when they left without, uh, hey, uh, this pizza is on me. Our condolences to his family and friends, you included, Wally. Thank you very much for this. Anything, anything else you'd like to say about Paul? Uh, well, you know, again, that uh, just uh, uh, ordinary down-to-earth uh, human being that uh, had, a go- had a heart of gold for, and, and anyone who needed help, if he knew someone was hurting, someone had no food, uh, Paul was there, and, and, and I think that's the legacy that uh, uh, he left, and certainly that will be a legacy when you go out there and you help those in need. Because you do it with the kindness from the bottom of your heart, I stay. I think speaks well, and uh, that's the kind of person that Paul was. Appreciate this, Wally. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye bye. All right, let's go. Last word this morning goes to line five. Bill, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Grant, sir. You. Good. Uh, I got some confusion with the city of St. John's. Uh, we moved here two years ago, and in the West End of St. John's, and. Uh, we had some sewer issues this spring, or the winter, before, just before Christmas, actually. So the town come down, put the cameras out, and from my house out to the curb, uh, we got new lines in, new sewer lines. And from there out are the old ones, the old tar paper ones, whatever you want to call them. I don't know the proper name of them. But anyhow, the, the bottom has gone out of the sewer from my, my property outside to the main, curb, to the main uh, dumping station, whatever you want to call it, to the main, to, to the main line. And now the city is telling me that's my responsibility. Do you, have you got any any uh, idea what they may be talking about? I, you, I know a little about? bit about it. So if you have to replace the lateral, right, 500 bucks, and the city is responsible for when it uh, clears the easement, is my understanding. You're responsible for everything from there to your home. That's right. From the curb stop in, I'm responsible for. From yep. the curb stop out, it's the city's responsible. 
That's my understanding. Right at the easement is where the the uh, private versus public meets the road. No, that's my understanding. I lived in a lot of places, and that's everywhere I ever went before. That was the rural zone, you know. That's the common. But the city is telling me I got to pay eight hundred bucks now for them to come up and dig up sixty-five feet out in Main Street, dig up the sidewalks and the, and, and the asphalt, and for me to pay eight hundred bucks. Now, does that include the, uh, replacing the the lateral your your line? My line, I got brand new ladder line. Okay. You know, that, that was done six years ago. The city done it six years ago under the cover. There's no record of it, but the, all my neighbors told me they done it six years ago. And the guy who done it, his brother owned the house, so there's no record of it. Well, so, I'm certainly not here to justify what the city's charging, nor do I know exactly what that fee is for, but uh, we can do what we can to find out and talk about it on the show. Okay, I really appreciate it, Patty, and uh, I'll wait to hear from you, and... Uh, if I don't hear back, I'll give you a call again Monday. How was that? Feel free. Okay, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, Bill did indeed have the last word. And we will pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>